Hey guys, Christian Spicer here with a quick cold open. I just wanted to say I am fundraising for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital again this year. We did an amazing job last year. I think we raised over a little over $3,000. I want to raise over $6,000 this year. I doubled it, doubled it. I just got back from visiting the hospital in Memphis, and um, I, I want to be your eyes and ears to that and, and what it is and what they do. And it's so powerful to be there and see them. I played Smash Brother with with a couple of, of kids, and I mean, just to see the light and the joy in their eyes, and two of the kids were playing his older brother and his younger brother, and he puts his arm around him. He's like, he's my best friend. And to know what these families are going through, and I know I have two kids, so maybe it's different for me um, than it is for other people, but... Kids and cancer, no one, okay, Um, no one should have to go through that, and no one should have to go through it alone, and what St. Jude makes possible, and and bringing families out there, and they don't pay for any travel, they don't pay for any of the Medicaid, they don't pay for anything, and it's all taken care of, and the environment, and and the way they bring video games into it, and and the world they build for these people, and to see the kids that have gotten better because of them, and St. Jude shares their research with everybody so that all kids everywhere have a chance. And they, they want to cure cancer. And they've partnered with the World Health Organization now to make it international. And the work they're doing, I can't, if I start to really talk about it, I'll get choked up. It Just walking through the hospital and seeing these families, pulling their kids along in a wagon, and it's a lot. It's a whole lot. We have a whole... <laughs> We have a great episode, so I don't want to, um, we have a great episode, uh, but I want you to donate and I want you to help these kids and I have an easy link up. If you go to my website, christianspicer.com, you can donate right there. Uh, the link's right there. All of the money goes to St. Jude. hundred percent of it goes to them. There are no processing fees or I'm not taking a cut. No one's taking cuts. It's all going to them. It's all tax deductible. And for this week until May 4th, any dollar you donate, I will match it dollar for dollar up to a max of a thousand dollars. I'm not made of money. But I want to help these kids, man. We did a great job last year, and I know you can do it. And I'll be streaming more all month to help raise money, and I want you to join me in those streams. I want you to tell your friends, $3 buys a surgical mask. Every little bit helps. It really does. Tell your friends. Spread the word. Let's cure cancer. Let's help these kids. All right? ChristianSpicer.com. There's a link there. Go donate. Help these kids. I'll be talking about it more all the month as well. Okay? Love you guys. Thanks. Base crashes in, you know it's time to begin, and wherever you are, whenever you are, and however you happen to be listening, we're so glad you've chosen to tune in to DLC, especially if you are one of our geeks in sneaks using this podcast to power you through a workout or a run, maybe you're doing dishes, maybe you're in the car, maybe you're in traffic, whatever it is, we're going to try to help 
the only way we know how by being in your ear holes for 90 plus minutes of gaming goodness because dlc is your downloadable commentary for the week delivered the way we love it to be and that is completely free thanks to our sponsor this week squarespace 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 brings the show to you, DLC, of course, the show all about games and their many forms, games played on desktops, laptops, and consoles, also games that involve dice, luck, and cardboard. I'm your host, Jeff Kanata, that's spelled with two N's and one T, and I am joined, as always, by my friend, slash co-host, slash nemesis, the guy who also opens to a billion dollars worldwide, Mr. Christian Spicer. Hello, Christian Hello, Jeff. Hello, listeners. It, uh, one, incredible. Two, I'm so curious about the person, all the people who don't go see all the other Marvel movies, but only watch the Avengers movies, apparently. Like, who are those people and how do they decide <laughs> to only see Avengers movies? Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's cool. I mean, I'm glad. It's amazing to me that, you know, this the movie that this is a direct sequel to uh more people saw you know in the first week <laughs> right, but yeah you know it's available yeah. on uh at home and people are like well i gotta get out there and see how this is before anybody spoils it i'm just i'm just happy we live in a world where that movie exists and it was good and it was a satisfying conclusion and now we got game of thrones it's like it's this is, this is geek holidays is what this is it's amazing <laughs> uh but we also got video games to talk about uh lots of them and we have an awesome guest to do it with this is going to be fun uh, you know, the DLC always stands for your downloadable Kanata and your downloadable Christian. But this week, oh man, I'm excited because DLC stands for Drafting Literary Chronicles because we have the best selling author of Console Wars and the History of the Future, Mr. Blake J. Harris, joins us for the first time. Hello, Blake. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely. Um, Christian and I are both uh, fans of your work, and uh, Christian... You could, say, you could say big fan. It'd be okay if you put big in there. I wouldn't mind. <laughs> we are oversized fans of your okay, work. We, we yeah, are... Great. Yeah, Christian would not shut up about <laughs> Console Wars for weeks after reading it, uh, and and uh, I am loving um, the history of the future. I'm a VR nut, so it's been fascinating seeing an inside look at that stuff. And, you know, the books are written like... Uh, like novels, really. It, it's their page turners. You're, you kind of feel like you're inside those worlds and you get a sense of, of all that stuff. So kudos and thank you for, for kind of bringing these kinds of stories, you know, giving them the, the focus that they deserve in a, in a novelization, of, in a, you know, a nonfiction book form. Thank you. I mean, I'm glad that it resonated with you that way. That, that was always my goal. Um, um, basically, my desire to write these books is because... I'm so shocked by how few video game books there are out there. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. there have been more in the past five years or so, but I just wanted to make sure that there was very accessible books. I, you know, I I often say that I write everything I do with my grandmother in mind, thinking how could I get my grandma to care about Sega or Nintendo or, or Oculus or virtual reality. And if my grandma could follow along then anyone could follow along, but um, so I'm glad to hear that it's working that way. And uh, perhaps more importantly than my books, I have a theory for, for your Avengers question of, of who's skipping oh. their Avengers movies just to see, you know, the other Marvel movies just to see the Avengers. I love it. I love it. More bang for your buck when you got all the heroes in the same, <laughs> same place. No, no. It's, it's such a simple theory. I, and it, it was something I was thinking about as I was uh, imagining the next phase of Marvel and, and we won't give away any spoilers, but what I was thinking was people just really like Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark and they'll see the movies that mm. he's in. 
And huh. as, as awesome as Black Panther was, which probably was uniquely a tier better than all the other, you know, movies, the other Marvel movies, which are all, I've enjoyed all of them. But I think that people come out to see Robert Downey Jr. And hmm. well, I guess, uh, I don't know, how, how can we test this theory? But anyway, that... I, well, that, Spider-Man, <laughs> Homeco- Spider-Man Homecoming made like $340 million, I think, domestically. So it did well, Gross. but it wasn't like... Nothing, just garbage. Yeah, it wasn't like... Uh, I mean, I, I guess they didn't make a big deal about I think Tony that's Stark the being thing. in Spider-Man. Yeah, like I was surprised yeah. when I watched it how much he was a part of it. It, it really could have just been like Spider-Man and Iron Man called that. And I bet yeah, it, it really better, wasn't. honestly. <laughs> and maybe they should have made a bigger deal about that, yeah. Uh, interesting, interesting. Perhaps you know he he's great, and uh, I'm particularly taken by uh, Chris Evans' performance over these however many movies he's in too. Like I just think he's fantastic. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, back to your book. I have to keep you on topic about your right, books, right, right, right. but <laughs> <laughs> um, I love the fact that these stories about this hobby that I've been involved with in and in, interested in in my entire life. Um, and involved in professionally for, you know, well over a decade and knowing sort of the ins and outs to a certain degree. Do you find that because some of this stuff is a little undercovered, not undercover, but undercovered, that you <laughs> uh, that it's harder for you to sort of do the research and, and get get into the room? Or do you find that it's easier to get those stories and find out, you know, firsthand accounts of stuff like, you know, that was happening between Sega and Nintendo, for example? Well, that's a really good question because you're right. I, I do think that compared to the film industry or the music industry, which are on somewhat similar footing with regards to being just gigantic, beloved entertainment industries, you know, what, what happens behind the scenes of the video game industry is certainly underreported. And I guess for me, it, my experience has been so different on the two different books, partly because one was a story about Sega and Nintendo that happened 20 five, 20 years ago and versus one that was happening in real time. And the fact that these people still work at these companies. And then also just the fact that my level of acts, you know, I, I, when I started writing console wars, I had no previous credits. So I was a nobody. And now I was somebody who at least wrote a book that some people have read. Um, <laughs> but, you know, for, for the Sega Nintendo book, I was just kind of shocked by how little there was out there. And that definitely did work to my advantage because when I started, when I, you know, I should say early on, it was very hard to figure out who I should even be speaking with because I, they're just, you know, there wasn't the lists of who worked at these companies and they hadn't really given right. any interviews. But when I did speak with them, they were almost like, ah, finally, someone, someone wants to talk to me about this. <laughs> Somebody's so, asking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't like, you know, versus this book um, where people were still very generous at the time. But, you know, when you interview someone for the 20th time to talk about the same thing, they're not as thrilled to talk about it. And you have to try to find other questions. Um, yeah. So, and you know, one thing that always really stood out to me about my first experience with console wars, even before I wrote it was um, so by this point in, uh, I guess it was November of 2012. At that point, I still had my day job trading commodities for Brazilian clients. I was about to quit <laughs> after I sold this book proposal and, um, we, we took the book proposal out to 25 publishers. And also at this point, Seth Rogen and Scott Rudin were already on board to um, do the feature film based on the book, which is now going to be a TV series. And then Seth had also agreed to write the forward and, and he was producing a documentary. So there's a lot of cool, good stuff happening with people who are way more famous than me. And, and of the 25 book publishers that we went out to, 22 of them passed. And the reason was essentially video game uh, books don't sell, that gamers don't buy books which I thought huh. was ridiculous. Um, and so I, I'm so glad that the gamers out there have proved them wrong 
And, uh, you know, in whatever small way, I hope that the success of console wars and now uh, the history of the future does, you know, create more of a market to inspire other writers or at least make it easier on them to tell these stories. Because like you, I'm just a fan and, and I want to know these stories. You know, people have asked me if I'm going to write a console wars too. And, um, you know, maybe I will one day. It's, it's more just a, an issue of time. You know, I have the curiosity, but if I never get to it, I would love for someone else to do it. I just want to read. I, I want to know what's going on behind the scenes. So I, I yeah. hope that the books have helped, um, make that happen for other writers. Console Wars 2 is, is what Sony and Microsoft. Yeah. The I idea so. would be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Christian, I know that you have, before you even get to sort of history of the future, which I'm, I have many questions about, um, I know you you have some stuff you wanted to ask about uh, console wars. Well, mostly Blake, I just want to put you on a retainer and just have you sit and write books for me all the time about things that I want to learn about. Because <laughs> I love reading it the way you write it. Like, I mean, console wars, you know, air quote two or whatever. The idea of Sony and Microsoft, sure, 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 that's all well and good. But I want like Microsoft from Xbox three hundred and sixty to Xbox One. Like, what happened there? So please write a book about that. I would like <laughs> a book. I would like about a book about Nintendo going from the GameCube and like trying to compete with the big boys and then changing totally to Wii and then the failure air quote of the Wii U and the resurgence of switch i'd like a book about that i'd like a book about all of um but so when you're writing when you sat down to write console wars and history of the future you know how important was it for you you mentioned your grandma approach like how important was that from you from the get-go or as you started kind of doing the research and putting this together you saw that as an avenue to you know frame it as a conversation where it feels like you're a you know a fly on the on the wall in the room with these individuals because another approach to like grandma writing is just simplify right where it's right, like right, right. Sega made a console where you could play games and and that's certainly not the approach you went where you got it, you talked about blast processing and whether it's real or not and how they advertised it versus what it actually did like you covered the nitty gritty but you did it in a way that in my opinion felt conversational and more like a film than a <clears throat> let me tell you about Sega right, right, and right. Nintendo. Like when did that decision um, come into focus for you? That's a good question because probably throughout the writing of console wars, which I wrote from you know, I did basically 2011 to 2014 and it came out in May of 2014. Um, you know, I don't think that I explicitly thought a lot of these things cause I didn't, I was just trying to figure them out. Um, but for, but in, in hindsight, a really big, uh, turning point in terms of, of my approach was I was doing an interview with Olaf Olafsson, who has one of the greatest names and was, you know, one of the heads of Sony back in the early nineties. And he's mentioned in the book as, uh, you know, going from Sony ImageSoft, the, the software company that was making games for Nintendo to uh, helping with the PlayStation project. And I remember talking to Olaf in his office here in New York and, and I was asking him about the early days with Nintendo when, when he was, you know, just working with them as a software developer and he described the experience as being like a slave on a plantation, which I thought was, you know, a very dramatic way of putting it. Certainly a way of putting it that I that never would have occurred to me or would have felt a little too um, hyperbolic or maybe insensitive to um, the reality of what he was saying. But 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 when I, I remember leaving his office and thinking that the story was actually so much like Game of Thrones, where you have these three hmm. different companies and each of them believes that they were the one that deserved to be the top dog, you know. Sony, you know, basically Sega to this day even thinks that Nintendo was a bunch of bullies and Nintendo, when I interview people to this day, they think that Sega was a bunch of marketing frauds with black blast processing and great, you know, advertising, but terrible games. And then Sony thought that both of them are doing it wrong and they felt snubbed by both of those companies. And so 
Game of Thrones, the books, you know, even more so than the series, really was an inspiration, not just because of the importance of the perspective driven narrative telling where, you know, uh, each of the chapters in Game of Thrones is from a different character's perspective, but it still is written in the third person. But also just the fact that if you, the actual, the writing style of Game of Thrones is um, basically like scenes, like in a movie, um, and then in between those scenes is just history weave throughout that provides context to help make the scene seem more important, or at least to weave in the history so that later on in the book, it's, it's relevant to you. And I think that that was something I started more um, uh, uh, intentionally did. I, I was reading the Game of Thrones books around that time too. So maybe I just saw what I wanted to see, but it was a really big inspiration. Um, and that was like the way for me to try to get in a lot of that history that you're right. If I was really truly just writing it with my grandma, it probably would be a 200 page book instead of a 500 page book. And I probably would have simple, simplified things and just not included them. But it was also, you know, I grew up during that time and I found so much of the stuff fascinating. I found so many of the characters fascinating that I wanted to try to make sure that there was a wide scope to the story. And also um, in, in going back to the perspective aspect, you know, I, there is a lot of truth to that idea that I know George R. R. Martin has talked about where every villain feels like they're the hero of their own story. Um, right. so yeah. I'm really not sure how the white walkers fit into that. And that's part of the problem. <laughs> but, yeah, we haven't but got all... that POV chapter of the white walker <laughs> where he's like, I just want dead people yeah. to not be dead. Is that so wrong? No one likes exactly. being dead. Let's just make them not dead. The kid white walkers being like, what are we going to eat today? Dad? And the dad being like, we're trying. Yeah. That's my problem with the show now. Just what's the, I, what do those guys want? Where's the sympathetic white walker perspective? Um, but, um, but you know, I, I really just wanted to, so, so basically like a, a good example of me even going further than I expected. And I know that this is even a place that some people have criticized console wars is uh, to, to, you know, from Sega's perspective, Nintendo was very obviously the villain that also helped motivate them because they were such an underdog at the time. But from Nintendo's perspective, they did think they were the good guys. They thought that their quote unquote bullying techniques were the things that were necessary to, prefer, to pre prevent another video game crash. And then also, you know, an example around that time that made Nintendo seem like the bad guy to the public was them buying the Seattle Mariners, you know, which at the time coincided with a lot of Japanese companies purchasing American companies. And there was the xenophobic aspect to it as well. You know, and this was a perfect case where it was America's pastime and Nintendo was buying them. And so there was a portion of the book that goes into the history of the Mariners um, so that you could understand why this is actually, uh, from Nintendo's perspective, a very sincere and helpful thing to do. And so, I, you know, I guess I, I'm a person, too, as much as I am a writer. And I just try to write stuff that I find fascinating. It's, it's taken me a few years to write these things. So there's a plenty of things I find that as long as I can try to weave it into the actual larger narrative, I always try to do that. And um, that's that's been one of the other most important things that I feel like I've learned from writing these two books over the past eight years was um, kind of this idea of, writing stuff that I find interesting and, and believing that other people will find those things interesting too, because there aren't that many books like console wars or the history of the future. And I don't even just mean in the video game world. I mean, this sort of narrative nonfiction, typically those books are about 200 or 300 pages, about half the size, but I, yeah. I try to write the books that I want to read where, you know, in the new book, when you're, you know, when, when, when Oculus early on is meeting with Epic um, or with, 
uh, Valve or, you know, I, I want to show what those companies are up to at that time um, and really just sort of create this time capsule element so that the books will still be fun to read years from now and really take you back in time and um, down each of these different rabbit holes. And and the, 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 uh, the downside to doing this, or I guess it's not really a downside, but it's something that I maybe didn't expect going on is, the, is just how long it takes to accomplish that. <laughs> um, hmm. You know, the new book, the, the, the dedication at the front says, um, you know, it's to my wife for sticking by my side as a as a one year project became three, um, <laughs> and, and and maybe one year was a little too optimistic from the publisher, but I um, you know I just didn't expect it would take this long. And part of that too was the fact that the main character Palmer Lucky got fired in the middle of it, or that he wasn't even quote fired. That Facebook said that he left on his own, and that was a whole mess that maybe we'll get into. But but I also think that that you know to tell the stories the way I do it requires getting to know people for a really long amounts of time um and also just really doing deep dives of research uh which is a long-winded way of saying that I wish that I could um you know just go ahead and write whatever books that you want me to write Christian because I generally want to probably <laughs> read those same things that you're interested in but I've learned that these things just take so long for me at least um so maybe I can write you short stories instead <laughs> well, at the at the risk of of comparing you to Bob Woodward, uh, you kind of do a similar thing to to what he does, uh, you know, in the in the realm of our hobby, and that is, um, oftentimes you're talking about people who are quite quite alive, still still around, and uh, in, in the case of the history of the future, very very recent history, as you mentioned, history that's still taking shape, and you are dramatizing scenes of dialogue between people that, you know, just by virtue of how the human memory works, even if you have, you know, direct confirmation of the people that were there, that this is how it went down. You can't ever really be sure. How, what's that process like of, you know, putting words in the mouth of people who are alive and able to retort, <laughs> you know, is that, yeah. what is that like? Well, for one thing, it's something that I take extremely seriously. I, and, and maybe we'll get into this later on because of what happened with Palmer and just how the book, in a way, is such a critique on, on the media. And he wrote off to media. the sunset and everything worked yes. out perfectly. <laughs> but like, I'm just shocked by, as somebody who has now had the good fortune to know a lot of people who are written about, whether it's Palmer Lucky or Brendan Areeb or Tom Kalinske at Sake and all that, I'm just shocked by how often... Um, journalists write about these people as if they're not actually people and, and, and more like it's just part of a reality show. So I don't know, I guess the first thing I would say is that I take it very seriously. I assume that everyone that I'm writing about is going to read this and my objective is not to please them, but I would like for them to, at least in their heart of hearts say, okay, that that's accurate. <laughs> um, yeah. And, 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 and it's a good question too, about the approach and, and what it's just like um, knowing that there's real people out there that I'm writing about because um, like I mentioned earlier with console wars, I was sort of figuring things out as I went along. It was my first time writing a book. It was my first time really writing any long form prose. Um, this time it was a little bit different. And, and I know that one of the biggest criticisms with console wars was the, the dialogue aspect, um, or even just some of the, the narrative nonfiction approach. And that was a story that did happen 25 years ago. So there's especially, you know, very little with regards to records of what happened. And, and I think we can assume it's very hard for people to remember or to, uh, you know, to believe that they remember stuff word for word. And I did, um, you know, I, I, I definitely 
uh, wrote dialogue to be more in the spirit of how it was described to me. And then I collaborated with them to try to, you know, amend it and, and make it better. Uh, but, but I did want to, uh, revise my approach with this book because it was more recent because I believe that people could remember things better. And also to some degree, because I didn't want to be criticized for something that I felt I was doing responsibly. Um, and so actually initially I was thinking that this book would be much more encyclopedic and dry and, you know, just, just the facts, ma'am sort of thing. And then I came to realize that that was really, really pathetic if I did that, because I would be doing that just to avoid being criticized and that would be an insult to the people that I was writing about because that wouldn't properly capture the excitement of this VR revolution. So I, I decided that stylistically I did want to be similar to console wars, but I wanted to at least have parameters in place that, that I could better explain my process. Um, and, and so I kind of having a background in doing a lot of oral histories and documentaries, I wanted to follow that approach here. And so, so I, every, every line of dialogue in this new book is something that I have, uh, verbatim audio of the person saying, or if, or, or if someone else that was in the room saying it as wow. for their memory. Um, so there's no like uh, recreationist dialogue. Of course, to your point, it's possible that people are misremembering things or that they don't remember them word for word. But I at least wanted to make sure that as with a documentary where someone would be misremembering something or not word for word, that at least right. it was coming from a source yeah. and it wasn't me trying to capture all right, this was a heated exchange between these two guys arguing about DRM content. I wanted to actually, <laughs> you know, use the words that they were using to me. And and part of that too, again, is not just because I wanted to cover my own butt, but I also, being a, a, an oral historian and, and documentary filmmaker, I do generally tend to find that the way people say things is almost as interesting and revealing as what they actually say. So I wanted to kind of get their verbal ticks in there and, uh, and make sure to capture that because I think that's a big part of what my grandmother would find enjoyable, that these sure. people all have such different personalities and um, Palmer Lucky especially is he's like a, you know, a, a journalist's dream because uh, he, he's such an eccentric person and um, the way he answers things and the stuff he doesn't say is super fascinating. Um, and uh, he's had a very, he had a very interesting past five or six years. Unfortunately, he didn't yeah. ride off into the sunset though. Fortunately he is, um, doing pretty well, um, though not at Oculus anymore. So after you had, had completed Console Wars, did you know that you wanted to write about Oculus? Did you have an interest in VR as a technology? Are you a fan of VR games? What's your What was that transition? That's a good like? question. So originally I was thinking about writing a book about electronic arts, um, which was kind of a, wow. a nat something I had covered because – you know, I, I interviewed so many. I, I'm also, I should say, like my favorite games to play are sports games. So, talk, so interviewing people from EA about EA sports stuff was like my favorite thing to do, even if it didn't always fully necessarily need to happen for console wars. Um, and so that's kind of what I was thinking. In particular, I was very fascinated by the early days of electronic arts when you're like you're like while i'm here since i have yeah. you i have some <laughs> thoughts about madden <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah no totally um and then you know that was how i always um remembered electronic arts and what i liked about ea um but then i didn't even really realize as a kid i should say that there was like this whole era before that where it was like this uh you know can a computer make you cry um ethos of of electronic arts where it was trying to be like this 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 haven for for software artists yeah. um and and so i was getting really deep into that and 
Um, and, you know, Trip Hawkins was kind of at the center of that uh, co-founder or founder, he would definitely say, of Electronic <laughs> Arts. Um, but I, I, I ended up believing that that was a little too similar to Console Wars. And, and it also made me realize, I won't name names, but there were some prickly personalities um, from the early days of Electronic Arts. And as I mentioned, you know, I, these books take me a few years to write. And I, I just didn't know if I'd want to wake up every day and want to deal with prickly people. <laughs> um, so I, and, and that was kind of an important realization for me um, because, I, you know, it is a long process and there is a human element to it. I, I, want the, I think the more curious I am about something, the more excited I am about something, the, it'll show in the work. And so I didn't want to pick something that would be a drag. And so I was looking for other topics. I was also sort of seriously considering writing about Rovio um, who makes Angry Birds and, you know, sort of using that as an excuse to delve into mobile gaming and, and really look at that landscape. And then I remember I was uh, talking, I was at, uh, I think it was at Comic-Con in 2014. It might have been E3, but I think it was Comic-Con. And I was sitting with Al Milson um, and Tom Kalinske, who were both at Sega during the console wars era. And they were asking me kind of the same questions as you, like, well, what, you know, what's, what are you going to write next? What are you thinking about? And I mentioned uh, EA and they're like, ah, oh, you already kind of did that. And I was like, what about Rovio? I was actually meeting with some Rovio folks there and they're like, oh, that's cool, but you could do something bigger. And then I said, well, you know, I've been pretty interested in this Oculus thing and this VR thing, but I think that, that book's going to take several years to write. Like this, it's so early in the process and they're both like looked at each other and like, oh, you should definitely do that story. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. So that was a good vote of confidence from two people that have kind of been like role models to me and who know good storytelling. And from there, um, you know, again, I, I, I think that for, to do the kind of writing that I do, um, where you feel like you're in the room or in the minds with these people, the access is so critical. So it took me a long time to get the access that I wanted from Oculus, who at that point was, uh, already, had already sold to Facebook. So, there, you know, I need to go through Facebook as well, but, uh, lo and behold, it worked out and starting in February of 2016, which was one month before the launch of the Oculus Rift uh, CV1, the consumer version, um, I basically was given um, unlimited and exclusive author access to the founders of Oculus and to the employees at Oculus and Facebook working on VR. And then the next year or so went absolutely not how either of us was <laughs> expected, yeah. which did make for an interesting story. And I, and, um, I, you know, I would never, uh, based on, uh, talent and accomplishments. I would never um, compare myself to Woodward or to Bernstein. You know, those guys are legends. But I did feel like uh, in a similar spot as as they were to some degree, at least with, uh, you know, all the President's Men and their Watergate research, where, um, you know, I, I set out to write a book with the history of the future that was a fun story about a scrappy company that started in a trailer in 2012 and ended up selling to Facebook and was now doing cool VR stuff. I never imagined that politics or, um, you know, <laughs> alleged trolling or, or, you know, anything with, 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 uh, with Trump or any of that stuff would become part of the book, but it did yeah, because yeah. that's where the story went. And, you know, sort of learning from people that I admired, like Woodward and Bernstein, like you go where the story takes you, not where you want to take the story. And so that's what it became about. And um, also dealing with Facebook, which is a big company, and they had given me this access. So then they wanted me to not write certain things. Um, I definitely felt uh, out of my element at times. But um, fortunately, I had a good support system and was able to take everything in stride. And, and I'm really happy with the final book that came out. Um, you know, I do sort of feel like the final 100 pages of the book are a different book than the rest of it. 
but that's okay. I mean, that's how the story went. And, and I think that, you know, like, you know, Facebook, the book, the book starts with Mark Zuckerberg um, talking to the Oculus team the day in March of 2014, after they just learned that they were being purchased or being acquired for about $3 billion. And, uh, you know, he's telling them about his vision for AR and VR and why he acquired them. And the goal to some degree, of course, is for Facebook to own VR, to own the metaverse, whatever you want to call it. And so I think understanding how Facebook operates and how they treat employees, how they treat their employees, how they view consumers is really important with regards to what we might expect from them going forward. And and I think if the past year has taught us anything, it's that we should uh, worry about Facebook related uh, issues and um, privacy related concerns earlier than later. um, For sure. Now we can try to stop those things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it's a rip roaring good read. I, I highly recommend it if you're listening. Um, History of the Future is is fascinating. Console Wars equally so, and uh, it, it's just it's just a fun yarn that you spin, which is which is really cool. And um, thank you. I, I, what I'm I'm curious as we sort of uh, transition to the rest of the show, I, I'm curious uh, having gone through all of that. That was three years of research and writing and getting to know these people behind not the entire VR industry, but a large section of it. Uh, what do you feel about the quote unquote VR revolution? What do you feel about the technology? Are you, are you a true believer or do you, you know, what, what's your, what's your take on that? Oh, I love that question. I love how you frame it too. Um, in terms of like, I, I try to be very careful with some of the wording around Oculus and this VR revolution, because well, I guess I'll get to it in a second, but but I didn't want. There's this idea that VR died in the '90s and then it was resurrected by Oculus and this VR revolution. And from a consumer commercial standpoint, that is largely true. But there's also people who worked on it for the past 25 years who never stopped working. There was only a few dozen of them, let's say. But but you know, I I, I didn't. I, I wanted to make sure that um, that even though this book focuses on Oculus, that it wasn't like Oculus invented VR. And that was one of the things that I liked about the cover of the book, which is, um, you know, like a, like a dinosaur tail. And I liked the idea of this was the sort of the tail end of this whole beast that you don't even really see. Um, but, but in terms of my feeling, like I remember early on in my writing process, probably in early 2016 or so around that time I was given that access, um, I was so excited about so much of the VR industry. And as a writer, I didn't really know where to focus my efforts. You know, there was uh, Sony was coming out with the headset and Valve and HTC. And then there was all these companies um, who were getting money from VCs. And, you know, every day on the websites I would read, like, you know, upload VR and road to VR. So stuff that's clearly focused on VR. You know, there was some new company that's doing some new thing. And for a while, I was trying to chase all of these leads and, um, you know, tell a really comprehensive story of the landscape. And then I sort of came to believe that that was a fool's errand, that it was going to take years for us to know what was important, um, you know, what was not, what really moved the needle. And, um, and then also, I just, I don't think I could predict that. And that the best way to tell the more expansive story was to uh, narrow down the scope of, of, of what my focus was. And, I remember thinking about the TV show Mad Men. You know, if you were going to tell a story about advertising in the 60s, you could tell a story about 10 different companies um, and, you know, toggle between all of them. Or you could really just focus very closely on one of them. And then through that company, 
um, see the other companies or, you know, sort of get a sense of the error. And so that's what I decided to do with Oculus. And, 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 and for good reason, I believe, you know, I think that it remains to be seen whether Oculus or slash Facebook VR will be successful. Um, I, I'm excited about Oculus Quest, but I also have a lot of concerns about Facebook and what they're planning to do with the data from AR and VR. But, 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 but I guess my point is, regardless of what happens next, I do think that historically Oculus was incredibly important for reigniting this interest and also just for remembering what their company was all about. You know, one of the key decisions early on that, that maybe just sort of seems obvious in retrospect, but it was a big deal at the time, was Brendan Arib, who later became the CEO of Oculus, persuading Palmer Luckey, um, you know, his co-founder, to not design a, a dev kit f- that was going to have to be built like DIY style um, and to make something that could be used by a lot more people and that the people they should be targeting were not just enthusiasts and not the everyday person, but particularly game developers. And so as a result of that approach, you know, what Oculus did between 2012 and 2016 was, was empower thousands upon thousands of developers. And in turn, you know, I think we all know, or we would say that one of the biggest challenges to um, launching a new medium is just creating that ecosystem of content. And so regardless of what happens to Oculus, whether they're successful or whether they, they, they don't succeed, you know, I think that what they did for the VR medium is historically important. And so I'm glad that I ended up focusing on them. And I think also the fact that most of the founders are not there anymore shows how that company has changed. That direction has changed from the, you know, very enthusiast indie developer driven approach from early on. Um, and then, then getting to your question about like how I feel about the industry going forward. Um, I, I, I would, I, I do consider myself a true believer and that's part of what makes my relationship and, uh, belief about what Facebook is doing kind of tough because as a VR fan, as a VR lover, I love that Facebook spent a few billion dollars on Oculus. I love that they continue to spend billions of dollars to uh, make content, acquire content, and and to push these advances in hardware. Um, and then there's the whole other side of Facebook where I am concerned about what they're doing with this information. And I also don't like how they lied to me while I was reporting and how I ended up losing my access. Um, so I'm kind of torn, but um, I guess that I, I do believe that it has passed the sort of tipping point where um, VR is inevitably going to find some success, you know, find lasting success, I should say. I hope that it's a mainstream success. I still think that remains to be seen. I know some people think that, you know, that's going to happen inevitably at this point. I don't necessarily agree. I think if Facebook were to pull out their investments, uh, the industry would really uh, fall apart to some degree, at least for a period of time. But um, but but all of this is a long-winded way of saying that I'm pro- I was probably off in how quickly I expected this revolution to happen, but I'm more bullish about it than I ever was seeing what I've seen and seeing what the potential of VR is. And um, I, 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 you know, I, I also think a lot about, like, I remember early on when I was talking to my literary manager, I was comparing Oculus in 2012 or, you know, 2017 or whatever time period I was mentioning to Apple in the late seventies, you know, and saying that Oculus was to VR, what Apple was to personal computers back then. And I see a lot of similarities between the VR revolution and the PC revolution. Hmm. Um, Importantly, meaning that it's not like the smartphone revolution where smartphones became ubiquitous so quickly and to such a high degree. Um, And then I remembered that with, with Apple, you know, Apple was the darling of the late seventies and they did so much important stuff for, for mainstreaming 
computers and 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 um but at the same time my family didn't own a personal computer until like 1995 so it took 15 years after that it, it was a long process is my point um i don't think it's going to take 15 years but i do think it's going to be a much longer slower burn than than those of us who are who were and are excited about vr probably expected um and I don't think that that's going to be a bad thing unless the money runs out. Yeah. It's always sort of what the problem is. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And like, honestly, it's like as a fan, I think that it's, I still believe in it and people should invest in it and Facebook should invest in it. But if I was a VC and it was my own money or money that I was managing, I don't know that I could um, stomach the investment at this point. So yeah, that's where I'm sort of at. Where, where are you at? Cause I know that you guys were all, pretty in pretty early on vr and really excited about it jeff you even mentioned in the book uh, <laughs> yes you know, thank you for that by rightfully the way. complaining <laughs> yeah you were that's how we connected you were rightfully complaining about the oculus launch delays because they did such a terrible job with their launch and their shipping and their customer service um so so yeah so as guys who've been excited about this for as long or maybe even longer than I have, what do you guys think of the industry right now? I think that's the great irony for me is that uh, as somebody who is vocally so supportive of VR technology and, and, and such a lover of it that I'm quoted in your book speaking very negatively about it, which is very, uh, very ironic for me. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, no, but, but let's, but let's be honest though. You like, I mean, people will of course get to it when they read the book, but you were, you were voicing a complaint about how you had, you, you know, there's, there was so much going on in that little moment where you were upset because you had ordered it the day yeah. it had come out and you were like first in line. So you're obviously someone who's very enthusiastic about this. And then you were finding out that actually you weren't going to get it until months later, right. probably even not until after it went to retail, which sort of defeated the whole purpose of you being excited and an early buyer. And, and the fact that Oculus didn't really prioritize people like you shows how much the company had changed. Right, so right. That was all the literary behind the scenes that was going on. There. No, that's why I really liked choosing you and for that quote. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, they botched that launch. It's, it, we, I kind of don't even really remember it, you know, because you, you, those times pass and then you have your, your thing and you just move on. But yeah, they really botched that launch and it was, um, was a big deal at the time and you're right it was indicative of how much the company had changed um but i'm you know i'm still bullish on the tech and i think that uh, i'm i'm hopeful about quest and uh, i think playstation vr is really encouraging and how um you know um mark cerny has already stated that current playstation vr will work on the next iteration of playstation i think i think you know it is you're right it is not the flashbang that some of us anticipated it being a, a real paradigm shift for the entire industry it, it, it didn't have that sea change moment, but I think it is going to be a more gradual change. And I'm still confident that my kids are going to think of VR as normal and think of computing the way we have our whole lives as being abnormal, because uh, I think there's going to be a point. <laughs> yeah, I think there's going to be a point at which it just doesn't make sense to not have that with you all the time and not be able to get inside an experience. Um, so, but yeah. Yeah, yeah we'll no, I agree. I liked some of the, the Nintendo stuff recently. Um, you know, like there's a, a, I believe a VR mode for Super Mario Odyssey and for the, Oh, we will talk game. about it. We will talk about yes. it. Today. And we so should, we'll get, we'll get yeah, we should, we yeah. should move on. I, I really enjoyed okay. hearing your perspective. We don't usually do a whole segment on, on our guest, but I'm just, it's just fascinating. And you had, you had been inside these experiences to, to such a degree and with such depth that it's been fascinating talking to you about it. But, um, yeah, it, it's great. So let's let's just jump in the show and start uh, with story of the week. Story of the week. It's the story of the week. Story of the week. It's the story of the week. 
Story of the Week is the part of the show where we make our case for the most important stories that happened in the world of games this week. You can always submit stories for our consideration by sending us an email at dlcfeedback at gmail.com or by visiting our subreddit. That's 5x5dlc.reddit.com. Cool folks hanging out there. Um, Blake, you are her guest, so you get first pick of stories. What would you consider to be your story of the week? Um, to me unsurprisingly given my background as a console war profiteer um i'm super fascinated with every twist and turn in the whole steam versus epic fake console war (laughs) people seem very excited about it um it's been interesting to see how the epic store uh has been making a lot of people upset and a lot of of uh developers i think happy in in equal measure Uh, a lot of players have voiced their uh, frustration with the Epic Store exclusives that we're seeing on the PC platform. Right. And uh, this week, Tim Sweeney came out and, and said some stuff on Twitter about how if Steam pulled back and offered a more beneficial revenue share to developers, they said an 88% revenue share in lieu of their current 70-30, then Epic would stop doing the exclusive. They stopped pursuing exclusives on their platform. Uh He says, quote, if Steam committed to a permanent 88% revenue share for all developers and publishers without major strings attached, Epic would hastily organize a retreat from exclusives while honoring our partner commitments and consider putting our own games on Steam. So he's clearly positioning them as the white knights, as the defenders of the developers and trying to um, trying to fight for more money for developers and not such a big share to steam. Are you buying that Blake? Do you think that's a legitimate thing or do you think that's a bit of a spin on Tim Sweeney's part? Um, more, more, more truth than spin there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess before I answer that question, I have a question for, for both of you, which is, you know, I, I joke that I'm sort of a, a I consider myself a war profiteer from writing console wars. And, and I know that, um, just in general, I find myself on the side of like competition breeds innovation and, you know, sort of this capitalism in video games is a good thing. So, but, but I also understand that uh, buying a console is expensive. So I, I try to be sensitive to the fact that not everyone can have uh, a PS4 and an Xbox. And, you know, I don't have both of those. So I, I totally understand, but I don't really understand why people are upset about this. I, I, is it really that big of a deal to have two different PC launchers? And I've heard some things about the security concerns because of, you know, the Epic game store isn't proven and maybe that's valid, but like, like why, why are people so upset? There, there's, there's no cost. It's not even, even like Netflix versus Hulu where you have to be a monthly subscriber right. to either of these stores. So I, I to understand, you know, who's the white knight here? I, I have to, I feel like I'm still not grasping what the actual problem is. Well, I think that uh, on the one hand, we could all drive ourselves insane trying to understand why gamers get upset. I mean, there's there's just one, sure. <laughs> that's one path. But there is some uh, some legitimate beef about the fact that the Epic Game Store is a nascent tech. It is uh, not, not feature parody, you know, not perfectly... Uh, equal on in terms of offering the features that steam does and when you have people that have years and years invested into one ecosystem and have friends lists and have achievements and all these things and then uh, a, an upcoming game 
is announced and one that they're excited about on PC. And then that game is not going to be released like Metro uh, was not going to be released on right, right. The, the, the platform that they or the ecosystem that they've been used to. They get upset. And I think that because the Epic Game Store doesn't have feature for feature parity with, uh, you know, Steam, I think that's what people are most upset about. Um, sure. And I think just the concept of exclusives alone riles people up, you know, as you know very, very well. Yes. Uh, uh, Christian, yes. what's your take on it? Yeah, I can only speak personally, kind of my misgivings about it. And I think it's it's um, creating distinct pools of friends and chats. And to some extent, it's a little easier now than it maybe was even five years ago. But knowing where your game is or you know, potential bloatware that might be associated with these things or knowing exactly what you're downloading. And like you mentioned about Oculus and Facebook, you know, how much data are they collecting? What are they doing with that data? And Steam has been around for so long that it's kind of this known entity. And so I think for me, of all the things, it's just I'm using Discord more and more for like my friends in my chat. And I feel like if there were just one unified game launcher and i know discord has its own game store too and ugh. Uh, but it's like knowing who's online where your friends are where they're playing games if i'm playing a game on steam will i see a notification that my gamer squad is ready to go and playing Fortnite? and so you know communicating to jump over there just little things that make it a little less convenient but i think for so much of gaming and getting a group of people to play together that convenience goes a long way so to me personally, that's the my biggest issue with these is the security issue of them and the data issue. And then having one central place for my friends and I to all gather and congregate and chat, even if we're not playing the same game. Christian, what is your take on Tim's statement here? I mean, he lays it on a bit thick. There's another tweet where he says, quote, such a move would be a glorious moment in the history of PC gaming and would have a sweeping impact on other platforms for generations to come. Then stories could go back to just being nice places to buy stuff rather than game developer IRS. Yeah. I, I, love, <laughs> I mean, that's pretty, I, I love it's pretty it. heavy handed. I, I love it in the sense that it is overly dramatic, you know, as in, Blake's book, when Sony announced the price for their PlayStation, they did it in a few less words, but also with, uh, you know, looking to the dramatics and being aware of the optics of it. Here, I feel like I'm not sure if I agree that Epic would do this, because I feel like uh, once you make this concession, is Epic then like, well, our developers now tell us that they don't like (laughs) user reviews. So (laughs) unless you get rid of, you know, whatever, like what's the next shoe to fall? It feels like a dangerous game. Yeah. That's why you don't, uh, you don't negotiate with, uh, with kidnappers or whatever. There's always with other game stores. That's why you never negotiate with other game (laughs) stores. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's also one of the things that I, I don't mean to, uh, pimp my own stuff, but, but, but as part of my process for writing the history of the future, I was able to obtain, over 25,000 documents, most of them emails. And there's an email, there, there was a decision that Oculus was Where making. are the 25,000 emails? <laughs> Blake, if <laughs> you're listening, there. if you're listening, please, can you find the 25,000 emails? Sorry. Well, I, don't, I mean, look, I'm from Chappaqua, New York, which is, happens to be where uh, a, a Mrs. Clinton uh, presidential candidate lives. So yeah. they're on the Clinton server. Oh, that's where you got them. Okay, emails. well, there's a lot of stuff you had but, to ignore um, to find the stuff about video <laughs> games. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but you guys, uh, you know, 
the, the Russians were able to find those emails. Okay. But anyway, uh, one of the, one of my favorite emails um, was an email that was, that was happening behind the scenes two months before the Oculus launch um, where they were still deciding how open or closed the ecosystem was going to be. And Tim Sweeney weighed in and wrote an email to Mark Zuckerberg. Um, and he said, uh, I'll just read a couple of quotes. He said, locking the Oculus hardware down in any way is an incredibly bad idea. It iterates several steps ahead. You've blocked Steam, Valve has blocked Oculus, and all their platforms have formed battle lines. So much is happening in, in secret that you won't even see the enemy positions until they're deeply entrenched. Enough stupid crap is already happening with Amazon refusing to sell Apple TV, Apple abortively fighting an ad-blocking war against Google, and Microsoft's broken Windows Store that doesn't sell real Windows Apple apps. Uh, Facebook should keep above the fray as a trusted and even-handed player in all ecosystems. Um, and then they proceeded so to ignore just, that just, advice. <laughs> right. And so that, that's a way of saying that um, we should never forget that, that Tim is a, is a good leader and a good employee, and everything he says is uh, that's what's best. It's yeah. really what's best for Epic. Right. And that's his job to do that. And it's also his job to actually see the world that way. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how sincere it is, but I'm also probably more sympathetic to developers than any other part of the industry, just because I'm a creator myself and because I interview a lot of developers. So, you know, I, if there's anything that can get an 88-12 split or even 80-20 or anything like, you know, I, I, I do think this is a good move in that direction, though right. I'm sort of wearing my biases on the sleeve. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. It's going to be interesting to see if all this pressure actually uh, actually impacts Valve and, and Steam and if they actually... They can't because they have a Valve. They oh, they just released the pressure, pressure and it comes out in the form yeah, of Steam and then you just get more Steam. <laughs> oh. You turn the knob <laughs> on the back of that guy's neck mm, and they're yeah. all good. Yeah. Anyway, it will be fascinating to see. I mean, it's, it seems like for the first time, really, Steam has an actual competitor in this space. And so, you know, that could be a, it could be a, a big shift for them. It's interesting to see if it's actually affecting their bottom line with these exclusives and stuff. So, uh, Yeah, one more point that, that, that you made that I probably hadn't considered enough was that was the situation that happened with Metro and that sort of being the most uh, – glaring example of the exclusives and it wasn't you know to me when i hear of exclusives i think oh now my colleagues or you know my friends that are developers will be able to get money to make things that wouldn't they wouldn't be able to make otherwise but you're right that was a case where it was something that was already made or about to be made and it was just a matter of who would get to play it and where right so that, that was a that was a good point that i had not considered it fully yeah uh christian what is your story of the week I'm going to pass my story to you because I know we've been playing a lot of great games. And to be perfectly honest, not a lot interested me this week. <laughs> There's nothing I'm dying to talk about uh, in terms of story of the week. The uh, the um, Epic Store was the biggest story in my opinion. But it's something else you'd like to talk about. I will pass it to you. Yeah, we don't have to spend a ton of time. I know we, uh, we're, we're later than we normally are in this segment. But I, I just – I don't know if you guys got a chance to read this what was, I think they called it a cover story on Polygon written by film crit Hulk uh, about Red Dead Redemption 2 and at the risk of, you know, redredging up all of. Is this just you talking about things that talk about you? Oh, I am is? quoted in this as well. Yes, I, I, I'm not bringing it up because of that. Again, and not, I'm quoted in a way that I don't think is particularly positive for me. But... That's the best, that's the best yeah. part. Jeff, you're such a downer on the industry. I don't understand. On, I think the Cheer three up. times I ever say negative things, people are like, let's quote this in our big article. Jeff hating yeah. things. Uh, <laughs> um, but I, I've been a fan of Film Hulk for a long time. I know that 
people who write under pseudonyms sometimes you don't want to completely you know throw your weight behind because you don't it's like why you're writing under a pseudonym why you you know and film crit hulk started as kind of a shtick of writing in all caps that was very abrasive but he has proven to be i think uh one of the most interesting writers on in both film and now video games uh for me and i've i've enjoyed his writing for a long long time i follow him on twitter i find his tweets very informative and interesting um and i think this uh present company notwithstanding i think this really you could call it a dissertation it's not really an article it has a table of contents at the beginning it's very long <laughs> i'm not joking i'm not making that up it, is, it has yeah. a table of contents and it is a it is a dissertation length treatise on red dead redemption 2 and its many flaws and triumphs and i think that it is w- really one of the finest pieces of uh, video game writing I've I've ever read uh, one of the most one of the finest pieces of criticism on any medium I've I've ever read, and not because I agree with so much of it. There's a lot in there that I I disagree with too. But I, I do. He does voice a lot of things I felt about Red Dead Redemption Two and says them much more eloquently than I. Um, but I I find it fascinating. I mean he it is a really interesting piece that I highly, highly recommend everybody listening to read. And again, it's very long, but very worth your time. And it's full. It's like a fully multimedia work too. He has video pieces that he has from other people that help illustrate points that he's making or that he references and then embeds the video there. And he has hyperlinks to other articles that fully illustrate what he's talking about. It is really dense and really so interesting. And he breaks down Red Dead Redemption 2 in a in a in an amazing way talks about how it fails uh, on many many levels uh, but really talks about it from a design perspective and why design is important and then breaks down the story uh, in in great detail and from a a critical eye of what makes great story and he finds a lot to like in it but all and and ultimately I think comes to the conclusion that he likes the game but that it fails fundamentally on so many levels. And there are a bunch of quotes that I could read. I don't, I mean, there's a lot here. Um, but one of my favorites, and it's one of the questions that I constantly was asked, asked in my criticism of the game. And again, I didn't finish it. He played over a hundred hours in order to write this. And I, you know, I played a a small fraction of that in order to understand, Hey, I'm not going to enjoy this. (laughs) I'm not going to have a good time with this game. Uh, but one of the things I, constantly was saying is 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 this feeling of fun and uh, i got a lot of criticism from listeners saying well hey that's not the metric that this game is working under and if you're expecting it to give you fun then that's just a pretty simplistic expectation uh he says um this is a quote from film crit hulk he says polygon's own chris plant asked me the single best question about the heart of the experience i had playing red dead redemption 2 when we were discussing these issues does it need to be fun? The developers behind Red Dead Redemption 2 may say they want a player to slow down and get into the natural rhythm of hunting deer and exploring the prairie, but the game includes endless obstructions and obfuscations from keeping me from savoring any of it. All the moments of joy in Red Dead Redemption 2 are so damn fleeting. And he talks about how uh, no, ultimately, no, you don't have to have fun but if you don't have fun, the other stuff you have to provide has to be way, way better than what they do. That They basically uh, let the player down at every level. And my favorite stuff that he talks about is 
how in the pursuit of realism, quote unquote, realism and immersion, that they they kind of misunderstand what that even is. Uh, he says, uh, the illusion of realism is achieved when games match our expectations and move at the speed of our intentions. The most realistic way for me to check a drawer in a game is to quickly see what's inside it, decide if I want it, and then either take the items or leave them as quickly as possible. That's what we do when we look into a drawer in real life. We don't break the task down into dozens of small movements or actions. <laughs> we just look into the drawer. This is how the games should approach the same tasks. Ease of functionality is much more immersive than a series of button presses and animations that mimic the real thing. Adding more button presses and steps to basic tasks takes me out of the game, in fact, because it makes me impatient as I'm forced to F with something that should be moving as quickly as my brain. And that is so perfectly sums up what I felt and couldn't articulate when I was criticizing the game is... Yeah, it's amazing that they animated every single little detail of that game world um, that when I'm looting a body, it literally bends over and looks in the suit jacket and it takes time. And when I'm searching through a drawer, I'm opening each drawer and search. But when I'm doing that in real life, any of those things, I mean, I've never looted a body in real life, but I assume if I w was, I would not be sitting there watching my arm do the thing. I wouldn't be watching the animation. That's not more realistic. It's actually less realistic because what I'm actually doing is this quick thing that really is more – is better articulated by a menu system of just like this is what's in it. Do you want it? No? Okay, move on. So I don't know. I found that all very fascinating and I'm so interested what you guys think about this. Blake? No, I agree with you. It was something that I don't think I considered enough um, when playing the game, but it, it is a great piece of criticism, and I'll get to that in a moment. But I, but it almost made me think that, um, you know, whether something is fun or not, I think that's one of the most important, if not the most important criteria of most forms of entertainment, but to the point of, like, if, if it doesn't have that, it has to have something else. And the phrase I was thinking of was, like, does this sweep you away? And then I was thinking of, like, I remember making this comparison a lot in college, but, like, watching the movie Hotel Rwanda. It's obviously a great movie, but it's not one that I was like psyched to watch. But when I did watch it, it did sweep me away. Like, right. you know, it, it's not like I'm like, hey, if I choose between Avengers or Hotel Rwanda, I'm probably going to choose Avengers. But um, I do think it's important to watch Hotel Rwanda, not just because the information in there is important, but it actually is a well-done movie and it does sweep you away. And, and the other thing that I thought reading this article just as a piece of criticism is just something that makes... Um, you think about games, um, the design of games, you're talking about the design elements, you know, I guess I, I was thinking of going back to college again. Um, you know, there's that book, Element, The Elements of Style by William Shrunk and E.B. White, which a lot of writers read and reread because it just sort of teaches you or just sort of reminds you how to pare down your writing, to write smoother, crisper things, to get rid of excess. And I remember a professor telling me that that he reads it every few years and that I would probably want to read it every few years. And, and I do feel like reading that every once in a while does help me. And, and I felt that way too, um, just about craft in general, whether it's writing or game designing with this article, you know, the first section talks about a book called the design of everyday things, which I have not read. And then the second one was about a, a food critic. Was it Jonathan gold, maybe gold. Yeah. 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 And it was like, LA and, Times yeah. Passed and, recently, but it was great. Yeah. yeah. And, and he, and it was this question of, um, the only question is why, you know, why is that there? Um, and, and 
like, you know, going back to the example I mentioned earlier with the Seattle Mariners, I didn't just include the history of the Mariners because I thought, oh, now's a good excuse to tell an interesting story about the Mariners. It was because it served the, the purpose I had hoped of, you know, get, further garnering Nintendo's perspective. And, and you know, basically, I, I think these are the questions that I would want game designers to be asking themselves and um, and maybe they'll come up with creative ways around that. But I did, I did really think this was a beautiful piece of writing and something that anyone who's involved in any craft will probably enjoy just as a piece of criticism to help sharpen their own work. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately I think the, the position he comes to is that he, after a hundred hours of playing the game feels that Red Dead Redemption two was trying to convey the feeling of futility that this, this, this old cowboy who is about to be, uh, you know, you sir, that, that the, the cowboy as a, an American icon was about to sort of sunset and this man was about to sun like this there's all this futility and no matter what he he did he couldn't do anything about it and his ultimate thesis statement i think he says um i question the point of a futility simulator of all the emotions to experience through gaming including shock terror awe affinity joy and love futility is the one i definitely get enough in real life it's not even an emotion really it's an obstruction to one and it says, I understand that there are some people who enjoyed this experience, this experience wholeheartedly, but I think there is a reason so many others joked about whether this game would make us all fill out our tax re returns too. I don't understand why <laughs> Rockstar wants to make a game this long about futility, let alone one that can't engage with the topic in a meaningful way. There's a big difference between games that teach you patience and those that demand it. Man, what a perfectly summed up, sentiment um christian i know you have been much more positive on red dead redemption 2 although you you didn't finish it either um w did you get a chance to read this article in whole i did i believe i i texted you about the article you did but you texted me you're like hey you're in it yeah that's true i don't have that's an true. rss reader for when jeff's <laughs> mentioned in things you don't have one of those uh, google alerts set up for my name actually just that's true i do um <laughs> So, well, one, quickly, uh, Blake, add this book to the list. I'd like you to write Rockstar. I don't know how you get access there, but that's that's one, too. Dude, so that's that would be a fascinating year, book. Year yeah. 34, I think, for the number of books I've assigned you. Uh, <laughs> um, two, I, I, I like Film Crick Holt. I loved his writing. You know, he wrote for a lot on uh, Birth, Death, Movies, Birth, Movies, Death. I was yeah. with the order wrong. Uh, that one, that website. Uh, and his tweets are great. I really like his analysis. To me, all I would add to this link the article is just and it's in there in places but like here's why i didn't find red dead too fun and a lot of reasons to explain it like because this isn't the type of argument in my opinion you win he did not like it and he gives great reasons for why and it's well researched but it's whether or not you find this fun and i found it fun and i can talk about why i think it's fun and i have friends who found it very fun and why they find it very fun what did and, you find and, most and so fun I, about it christian I don't, I don't mean uh, in like a devil's advocate way because I, I enjoyed it for at first a lot. I'm just curious what you found very fun about it. The, the sense of place and being yeah. and allowing myself to uh, slow down and experience it, that mixed with the ability to ride into town and have my own just like see what happens moments where I set up all this these horrible possible scenarios and then I ride into town mask up guns out and I let this scenario that I've built up over the course of sometimes five ten hours right in terms of my 
um, bounty being high enough in an area and doing enough criminal activity in an area to then roll in there and see what I've set up. And then contrasting that with playing it as safe as I can and trying to be the good guy and being right, doing right by people and experiencing these moments as a, someone who would maybe live that world. And it wasn't a role-playing game for me as much as it was an Arthur Morgan simulator. And I think there's something very interesting that I found very enjoyable to that style of gameplay versus the Skyrim, you know, or fallout approach of I'm putting myself into this world. It was me being someone else and it was transformative in that regard. And I found that very fun and engaging. Well, I think his point and one that I really agree with is that you have to work really hard to even achieve that and the game gets in the way to achieve that had to and you had to but i think putting that on other people is is the it's a conversation that we've had in the past jeff i think about like in your opinion and that's no of course of course this is all opinion but but i think that he makes really uh i think strong arguments about how if the game wanted to provide you that experience the experience that you enjoy most out of it it really gets in its own way in giving that to you. And it, it, it the design of the game, he, he does this great thing where he talks about how, you know, you have um, people who are like, uh, yeah, there's this door in our house and you just have to jiggle it and you have to do it a certain way. You jiggle it and then you, you open it. Uh, and then, you know, and I, he talks about how people will do these extraordinary things where they will adapt to the thing Rather than making the thing adapt to them, they will, you know, it, there's a key, you put the key in the lock, but the key, you have to move it and you can't put it all the way in. You have to pull it. It's like, no, replace the lock, man. It, you know, just, that you shouldn't have to adapt to it in order to get the thing you want. And I was reminded of people I've known uh, who, who have the, you know, the um, smoke alarm th- alert that you have low batteries going off for like, years of their life i i knew a guy who literally would just go off for years i'm like how do you live like that he's like yeah, you, you can ignore it after a while it's like but you shouldn't have to <laughs> you shouldn't have to and i think that's his point is that there's so much in this game that just baffles him and i and me i will agree that i'm in that camp um that that the game and and it and he makes a really great point that it becomes this badge of honor for people that put up with it. Yeah. I'm not saying this is your position, Christian, but I, I, and it's a very wide ranging article and is one that challenged my thinking about games and thinking about design and the, the ways in which, you know, his argument is that there is this sentiment in the hard quote unquote, hardcore gaming community that things that are, uh, that, ostracize the mainstream that 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 are impediments for you to appreciate thing if they, if they're able to transcend it they like the fact that other people aren't and that bad design is oftentimes mm. heralded as a positive because it keeps the quote-unquote casuals out you know and and it's a it's a fascinating position it's a fascinating th- way to think about it that that shouldn't be the case it, it, if you want to create a an experience there are ways to do that much more easily and much with much less friction. Um, but it, it, anyway, it again, you, I, I'm not trying to tell you that your appreciation and enjoyment of and in Red Dead Redemption 2 is wrong. I'm just saying that I think a, a, an, 
analysis of all the things that this game does in a just baffling, bizarre way is fascinating and kind of bolsters my opinion that it is, uh, I think, um, lauded disproportionately because of the things that it does do and the, uh, the, the production value that it does them with. Um, but ultimately it is a deeply, deeply flawed work, uh, in my opinion. So I feel like you just weren't getting, I think you had your Avengers tweet go out. You had your spoiler free Avengers video go out. You had the dungeon run premiere, all this stuff that people loved and you're just missing getting crap in your Twitter mentions. So you wanted to bring this up again. Yeah, (laughs) I definitely don't need the backlash that I will undoubtedly get, but at least I'm not getting what he's getting. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I thought it was an amazing article and I want to highlight it to people, but it was a slow news week and I found this article to be um, just fascinating reading. So I, I urge people to check it out. Okay. Also, Red Dead 2 is fun and it's cheap now, so you should go get it. <laughs> All right. Um, let's uh, thank our sponsor, Squarespace. Squarespace is a place to make a website should you have any need for it. Let's say you've written a couple of best-selling books about the video game industry and you want to publicize them. It's great to you need probably need a website. Let's say you're uh, you're going to talk you're going to write a treatise on a, a video game that most people like that you want to tell people isn't so good. You probably need a uh, website. There's lots of reasons why you might need a re- website. Turn a cool idea into a website, want to sell something, want to uh, promote your business, whatever it is. You're going to need a website. Squarespace is the place to make that thing easy and fast and beautiful because they start with beautiful templates created by world-class designers, and then you can make them your own. You just uh, drag and drop. It's what you see is what you get. Easy, easy, easy. You customize the look and feel. You customize the settings. Just a few clicks. You can drag and drop powerful e-commerce functionality into it. So you want to sell something, boom, boom, boom. It's easy. You got built-in search engine optimization. They got analytics to help you grow in real time. And there's never anything to patch or upgrade. That's all handled for you. 24-7 award-winning customer support in case you run into any issues. Make it yourself. Make it yourself. No reason to pay somebody to make a website. You can do it with Squarespace. And we want to help. If you check out squarespace.com slash Jeff sent me and use promo code Jeff sent me, get a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use that promo code, J-E-F-F-S-E-N-T-M-E, all one word, to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash Jeff sent me and promo code Jeff sent me to get yourself 10% off. All right, time to talk about the games that we have been playing. Blake, I know you've been busy promoting a new book, but um, what have you been playing lately? Um, well, I've been busy uh, after get, being humbled, speaking of games that uh, people wear as a badge of honor for their difficulty. I've uh, been playing some Cuphead on my Switch. Which oh, is yeah, yes. Like the <laughs> extremely uh, opposite-end version of the other game I was playing was... Uh, the new Super Mario Brothers game, the the old Wii U game, uh, which is incredibly easy, but also very fun. Um, but it was just making me think when I was playing it, like, wow, I have, I'm, I'm stuck at 99 lives because you can't get more than 99 lives. I remember playing Mario <laughs> One when I was like seven years old and how hard it was to just make it for more than like five minutes playing this game. But anyway, um, yeah. So you would say you have 99 lives, but a Switch ain't one. 
Oh, hey. Oh, boy. Or how about uh, uh, Cuphead is one? Oh, Cuphead is one. So Cuphead were you, like, one. playing those – were you playing those games concurrently, like, switching back and forth and going, oh, Cuphead, no, nah, I need a break. Let's go – let's make myself feel good and play some new Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. I'm still playing that concurrently. And it, and it's interesting because what I love about both games is, is sort of that, like, je ne sais quoi that – that is always there in a lot of platformers where it's just fun to move the characters and to, to, to be there. And I think that is kind of what, what's what I liked most about Red Dead Redemption. Like you can make the point that everything was maybe more difficult than it needed to be or certain things were, but I just, I did like the, the sense of place and I did like being there and move, you know, something just felt like it worked to me. And both of these yeah. games, Cophead and Mario Brothers are, are, Ex- excellent um, examples of that, though, certainly on different ends of the spectrum when it comes to ease of play. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, are you, do you get discouraged playing Cuphead or you enjoy that challenge? Because it's a game I kind of stayed away from just because I didn't want to really want to do that to myself. I'm enjoying it. I mean, I think that probably my emotional professional state has a, has a big bearing on that. Like if I'm struggling with a chapter for a few days, I, I probably don't want to be playing Cuphead, but now that I'm mostly <laughs> promoting the book and, and talking about the book and feel like my shoulders can uh, shrug a little bit. Um, now is better. You know, there's a reason why I waited until now. Well, I guess that's not true because it just came out on switch, but there's a reason why I didn't try to play it um, on other platforms before that. And you said you're a big fan of sports games. Uh, is there a sports game you're you're playing now? I mean, yes. it is uh, NBA season, NBA playoff season. So, yeah, you, I'm playing. Uh, uh, yeah, you could call it playing uh, NBA 2K19 on my Switch. Um, that that's like the one that I played a, a lot. I played 2K18 and 2K19. That's what I played a lot while I was writing the book. That was like my end of the night. Try to transition from being amped up to to slowing down because that's just easy and fun and. I really like are those games? Are, are those games sort of? Uh, do you even look at them with a critical eye, or is it just the next one, the next year? We got. I'm in. I'm in already. Or do you? Do you is there something you expect out of the next iteration of the 2K franchise? It's a good question. Um, for me, no, and and that's probably because I look at it as so much of just an escape, and I tried. There's other, so many other aspects of life I'm more critical with with, with gaming. Um, and then yeah. also, I think going back to what I liked so much as a kid about EA Sports. And, and just sports games in general was like the, the, the sim aspect like the chance to like, I love that the EA sports games had the actual player names or the numbers. And like, I've always been a fan of like roster building and like trading and that kind of construction stuff. So to me, just having like the rookies in the game is enough to be like, Oh, now I can play as Luka Doncic and you know, <laughs> all this stuff that really it's just, you know, ones and zeros. And it's probably comparable to some other player that I had in the other game. <laughs> but to me, like that, that is a big part of the fun for me. Um, so, yeah. so, so I can, uh, yeah, look at it not too critically and just excited to have more, more, uh, games and, you know, more, more teams, more throwback teams to play with. Right. Uh, Christian, this might be a good time for us to mention, since we're talking about the NBA, that uh, our little friendly wager is is upon us once again as our two favorite NBA teams are clashing once again in the playoffs. Yeah, I can't believe uh, the NBA Finals are already this week. It feels <laughs> yeah. um, early to be happening. But yes, we have a uh, wager in the Rockets-Warriors series where the winner will buy the loser lunch and then also donate 100 bucks to my St. Jude play live um charity fundraising effort 
And so I look forward to uh, the refs deciding that the Warriors <laughs> should lose. Um. <laughs> yeah, didn't happen this week uh, or this night, I should say. Uh, we were recording just after the the uh, Warriors won game one. So it was a crazy end to that game. But uh, yeah, yeah, I'm excited. I think it's a win-win. You know, it's, uh, I definitely want to win, but it's a win-win either way because we're both going to be supporting a charity. Um, yes. And uh, speaking of Switch games, Christian, uh, <laughs> after you sent me a link to a Polygon article, I refrained from sending you a link to a Polygon article. Oh, I read it. Did you read it? Do you Mortal agree? Kombat on Switch? Yeah, Mortal Kombat 11 you're playing on Switch. It got ripped, on at least on the Polygon article I saw. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I read that. Ar- I think it's the same article, and I don't know if that article really ripped it or not, or as much as it kind of pointed out some of the inherent flaws of a expectations said, of a switch. It said, do so, not buy this on switch. Is that if you care about this game at all and you own any, <laughs> any other console, no, that is not, that, you're paraphrasing, <laughs> uh, paraphrasing accurately. Uh, so here's, so let me, I'll answer the, I'll address the situation first and then I'll talk about my feelings about the game. So th- it has the game itself has multiple modes that require an online connection. Um, the towers of time. I think all of the towers, maybe um, I think the crypt mode, even it's a lot, a lot of it requires an online connection. And so if you think of the switch as a thing that you're going to be playing on the bus or on a plane or in somewhere where you don't have wifi or internet, then a lot of the game, I think pretty much except for story mode and maybe just like practice um, like versus mode against AI is uh, that's all you can play right everything else is locked because it requires an internet connection so in that regard yeah there's no reason to suffer the graphical downgrades of the switch version if those things block you from playing it but if the most the places you play your switch have wi-fi um hotel rooms green rooms (laughs) your office um then (laughs) it's it's great to have it on a system where you can easily as you're waiting for something to render or waiting to get something from somebody else, you can pick it up and because it has a sleep mode where you can put it down in the middle of anything except for an online you know, game against somebody else, you can play for five or ten minutes, then it's amazing on Switch. So I understand the Polygon article and the limitations it kind of brought up. Um, it seemed like the biggest gripe was talking about when you're in the crypt, you know, there's a lot of nice visual Easter eggs that are in the the big versions of the game that aren't in this version because of Turok level fog. <laughs> that <laughs> Turok level fog. <laughs> it obstructs a lot of the, the cool vistas and stuff like that. We've achieved Silent Hill 1. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I understand it. But I also, as someone who made the decision early on to get the game on Switch, um, I cannot recommend it on Switch enough. Like, if you want the best graphics, you know, the best, crispest, sharpest version of this game, I would say Xbox One X is the way to go. PC and Warner Brothers and I think NetherRealm ports have um, been problematic in the past, and I haven't read enough about this one, but if history were to, you know, serve me as any indicator, I would recommend it on Xbox One X. Um, But as someone who has spoken fondly on this show of... You know, the days where I didn't mind NBA Jam on my Genesis not being the exact arcade experience because I was able to play NBA Jam at home, (laughs) like those trade-offs were worth it, then the same thing is true here of Mortal Kombat 11 on Switch. Yes, it's not the exact same version as the big consoles, but I played through the story mode on planes, 
Uh, I played through internet stuff and, and did some of the towers when I was in a hotel room when I was in Memphis visiting St. Jude. Did you play it with it... a mouse? Did you play it in a house? <laughs> <laughs> I played it in bed. Did you play it here night. or there? Did you play it everywhere? All of the above. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And so while it takes graphical hits, um, certainly, the biggest, I think, in my opinion, are when it goes into um, fatal blows, which are like, you know, like the bone breaking moves mid-match. Like, it seems like maybe the lighting shifts. So it's like those look the most egregious to me, or it's like the hair and stuff stands out more when it really slows down to zoom in on a character. Um, but otherwise, the game stays locked at 60 frames per second during the fighting. It's the whole game. And the trade-offs of all of those those graphical things are totally worth it for me to have Mortal Kombat 11 in my hand whenever I want it. So if I am on a bus or a plane or a train or somewhere without Wi-Fi, I can go in and, and you know just get some lab time in and work on my combos and and get my timing better for when I'm at home playing by myself or you know playing against someone online. And you're playing almost exclusively with the Pro Controller on the Switch, right? It's been a mix back and forth, and I've found that the Joy-Cons, you know, attach, not one Joy-Con sideways singly, uh, never play like that. You know, the Joy-Cons in handheld mode, it's very serviceable. Is that the most glowing review? I don't know. but <laughs> I, I think I know. It's not the I'm, most glowing review. I'm plowing through, you know, I plow through the story mode like that yeah. uh, for a good chunk of it. You don't and, find yourself missing moves you want to do. Correct. Yeah. Correct. I'm not I'm not hampered by it. And I'm just blown away by the fact that I'm playing it on Switch. So I think, again, yes, it's not the best version of the game. But for me, and where I often play my Switch, and especially since I was literally Traveling. out of town yeah. <laughs> the week this game came out. No regrets. I made no regrets. What I do want to talk about more, though, is just the <laughs> game itself, if we could not focus on uh, the, the console I'm playing it on. I suppose. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, let's talk about it. It's incredible. Yeah. It's real good. It's also really fun to have gone, you know, I just, whenever the Ninja Turtles came out in Injustice 2, which was maybe a year ago, um, the, the difference in feel between these two games that are otherwise very similar, right, in terms of approach, team, visually, if you look at them, uh, you see someone playing them. But Mortal Kombat 11, every character seems to have so much more weight behind them, and it's a slower more deliberate fighter in my opinion than injustice where things could get very fast very quickly and it was really interesting for me to go back to the mortal kombat 11 after spending so much time with injustice 2 and and make that that shift so the core fighting i think is again not as a i'm not, I'm not a pro right but is is really strong really cool the tweaks they've made to the gameplay from both Injustice and from uh, Mortal Kombat 10. Also, I should note, I played Mortal Kombat 9 on my Vita. So, like, you, you know where I'm coming from. Uh, I like handhelds. Um, it, it's it's really interesting how they tweak things. I think Fatal Blows are fascinating in the sense that you only get one per match. Um, so, it's you know, if you use it early, you don't have, you know, your competitor is going to have it their next match. And then the third match, <laughs> there you go. You got to win. Um, I think it's a really nice add. Um, and I know they're working on it. The other thing I wanted to talk about was just the the um, play forever I, is the polite way I guess I'll put it of the tower t- trials of t- tower of times times of towers whatever they're called um, tabletop time ma- <laughs> tabletop time yeah play the play the bumper um, <laughs> <laughs> this game in my opinion and many of the critiques I've read about it that I agree with and I know they've they've patched it some it is a grind man. 
it it to get all does it the have things... to be though like no yeah no, i'm not saying did they have to make it that way but is it is it a grind it, it, it it's just one mode that's a grind right it's there's lots to do in the game that isn't a grind right the 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 biggest thing there's ugh, i'm gonna get all the terms wrong i should have refreshed it brought the game in here with me because i could have because it's on my switch um the main it, it felt to me the the main kind of continued progression in like the kind of the multiverse and injustice 2 um where most of your unlocks are going to come from and your customization and your keys or tokens for the crypt and stuff like that it felt to me as if the game moved me toward the time towers mm. and i believe there are classic towers as well man i should have looked this up um but i feel like that's where the game kind of pushes you to get these unlocks and get the perks and the rewards and i think it's a double-edged sword and again patched changing some and maybe being changed more um another well another realm came out very quickly after these critiques came out said we're working on an update <laughs> we, we're working on an update which is kind of like kudos but also kind of like you knew <laughs> uh, um it's to me a double-edged sword of like very difficult. Some of these matches are very difficult. Maybe I was playing on a Joy-Con, uh, but very difficult. And then the rewards didn't feel meaningful enough. So it's like, it's one thing if it's really hard, but then you get there and it's, you know, I'm making this up, but it's pick the best thing, you know, here's all the best things go, go pick it and you can get that. And that's incredible. And it's a different thing to be like, do a thing to uh what jeff's opinion of red dead redemption 2 right like just to it's no longer fun but you need to do it to do it to get the thing to do it (laughs) and then you do it and they're like congratulations here's a feather and you're like what (laughs) what do i do with the feather and they're like nothing (laughs) (laughs) you know like i'm again making up that example but that's what it feels like and so it's doubly frustrating where the AI health or the way it limits you and what you're allowed to do. And then the thing it gives you at the end, but also you need to keep doing those things to eventually get the good things. And it's not like hang in there, kitty cat. If you do this a hundred times, the hundred and first time you get the good thing. So it's not even laid out, at least not in a way that I saw laid out for you that way either. And so it's this, yes, this is supposed to be the forever part of the game. um, But in my opinion, the way the multiverse handled it in injustice two, it was a little more, I felt like I was always getting something cool, kind of like Diablo or the best looter shooters, right? It's that balance of, mm-hmm. yes, I'm playing the same mission over and over and over again, and I'm grinding for loot, but it needs to be a little more judicious in how it doles it out, I guess, and a little less frustrating in what I need to do to get it. But also, I love this game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's real good. It, it, uh, Red Sky in the chat says the chests are randomized now. Um, so they're working on it, and hopefully it continues to get better. But um, I, I, I love it with my whole heart, and the, the facial animations are incredible. There's um, uh, Kotal Khan is reminds me of um, Brainiac and Injustice 2, where it looks like a person with green makeup on. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. just absolutely incredible. Um, I, I will it's funny, if I it find... really was a person with green makeup on, we'd be like, that's so cheesy. But the fact that it's a <laughs> CG person that looks like a person with green makeup, we're yeah. like, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And my two last kind of comments on it. Uh, one, I find Ronda Rouse, Rousey, Ronda Rouse's mm-hmm. performance to be lackluster, um, like her, especially compared to some of the other voice talent in the game that seemed to knock it out of the park. 
Um, I also find some of her old tweets and statements problematic, and I don't think Mortal Kombat needed her by any stretch of the like. They're not. She's not on the box. You know, they're not selling it mm-hmm. with her. Um, so it seems like a weird uh, matchup to me for someone who doesn't knock it out of the park. Um, and then two, the game's story mode, and this is something that NetherRealm has continued to do. Um, oh, Mighty Sandwich, the chest contents are not random, only their positions. Again, the game's figuring it out. <laughs> um, but Mortal Kombat and NetherRealm, the story they tell is incredible. And it's such a little thing. I mean, I'm sure it's a lot of work. But basically, the game, it'd be the same game that I'm playing if I was just moving up, a, you know, the way you did in the old arcade game. It, you know, maybe it changed who I played as from time to time, but it would just be like, here's Raiden versus Sonya. Yeah. Raiden versus Johnny. Raiden versus yeah. Shao Kahn. And no context like, would have been yeah, yeah, perfectly acceptable. Doing, yeah. What I'm doing would be exactly the same. Yeah. But the way they tell this a really cool, fun, campy, beautifully animated story, I think makes it so much more engaging. Yeah. And I think it's something that more games should look to do where it's still just a fighting game or it's what sports games did too. Kind of like what, you know, Blake had talked about with NBA 2K, the way they tell a story now of like, or FIFA, like this young buck coming up to me that really crystallized playing Mortal Kombat 11 of like, oh yeah, I'm just playing arcade mode. But <laughs> yeah. this wonderful story, I, I love it so much more and I don't mind that I have to play as Jax for five fights, even though I've never picked Jax because he's too slow for me. Um, but now I'm like, yeah, what is Jax up to? It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's phenomenal. It, there's a really wonderful section in that Film Crit Hulk uh, article about this very thing uh, in the idea of what story does for contextualizing a game and how people are wrong, in his opinion, uh, people are wrong when they say cutscenes are a bad way to tell a story uh, in a video game, and it's 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 fascinating. And it, it, I think this is proof of that. If you have some investment, e- either in curiosity or emotionally or whatever it is that story brings, it makes everything better. It makes everything better. Yeah. Um, so yeah, super cool. Uh, I know you've also been playing that Fortnite because uh, some Avengers assembled in it. I dove back in. I'm so glad that I dove back in uh, in earnest after uh, the Black Widow skin was no longer for sale, because otherwise I would have bought it. <laughs> um, the For- Fortnite Avengers in-game mode, it's really cool. You start off as either um, Team Thanos, Thanos, or Team Regular Folk. <laughs> and if you're Team Thanos, you're trying to collect the Infinity Stones. And if you're regular folk, there are Avengers weapons on the map that you can collect and you're trying to prevent them from getting the Infinity Stones. And to me, what this really crystallized in my mind was how Battle Royale 1 really is just a mode. Not only is it just a mode in any game now, but it's just a mode in Fortnite where, and what Fortnite has done is bigger than just being a Battle Royale mode. Because for all intents and purposes, I was just playing King of the Hill right? It's like the, the the stones spawn in a certain part of the map, and you go to that area, and that's where you duke it out, and that's where you fight. But it has that with the building mechanic uh, and a circle, and like the other things that it's kind of introduced. But just the core gameplay mechanics of that game are so strong that playing a game mode that I otherwise traditionally haven't been interested in, and also the IP um, helped. But a game mode that I'm usually not that interested in, other uh, shooters done in the Fortnite universe felt really strong and really appealing because so much of the rest of the game felt familiar to me. Um, I think is a testament to Fortnite staying power. And also 
who would have ever thought that you could have the most successful shooter of all time with one map? <laughs> yeah, right. <That's laughs> and they've funny. changed it a lot, but it's, I mean, imagine Call of Duty launching 10 years ago and like, and here's our map. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they've done it and they keep doing it well. If you haven't checked it out, I recommend diving into Fortnite Avengers, the in-game content. It is just, you know, squad two two teams, Thanos or regular folk, I guess, Avengers, but it's cool and it's fun to see folk. the... It's fun to see the cap shield flying around in game and stuff like that and the powers and it's uh it's well done. Cool. The Chathari, is that how you say it? Um are the enemies are the regular Chatari. Are the team Thanos, regular folk. Yeah. And then one person gets to become Thanos. It's uh real well done. Cool. Uh I have been playing some days gone on the PlayStation 4, although not as much as I probably would have in another week. Um I launched uh, the D&D live play show that I am the Dungeon Master for called Dungeon Run this week on Wednesday. And I also, my, my daughter's first birthday. So we had like family in town, still have family in town at this very moment. There's literally a party in my house in the other room where I am not right now. So you may have heard some things, <laughs> weird things over the course of the show. Uh, anyway, that is just to say that I have not played as much Days Gone as I would have liked to have played. But I do have some thoughts about it. It, it is... Um, it is an interesting game. It's one of those games where if it had come out five years ago, maybe more, everybody would be going crazy. It's amazing. Like, amazing, 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 but not so much anymore, you know? Uh, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them is I'm, I personally am not super excited about playing the end of the world again it just it, we just i'm just a little fatigued on the end have of the you world had any of those scenes that the internet is quoting all the time like i just got my copy i haven't fired it up yet at all but like i've yeah. seen some of the quotes and be like, are they better in context or are they still the writing is a little clunky uh there's some heavy-handed stuff um it is a very violent game right away it is very harsh it is just you know i've spoken about this before on the show that you know just in the last couple of years, I've just lost my bloodlust for being in a harsh, <laughs> you know, harsh dystopian uh, hellscape where I have to murder to survive. It's just th- th- those games God used to. War. Well, God of War, I wouldn't put God of War is a fantasy world of uh, I don't know. So the realism. Maybe, you know, murdering human beings. I mean, there's a lot of zombies in this game, too, although they don't call them zombies, but. Uh, and zombies again, also little, little fatigued on. Because we're older, or like are maybe younger people still feel the same way, or are we just tired of? That's a good question. Trope and, I think that's yeah. a very good question. I think maybe you know this is very a very personal observation. I don't think this is the game's fault, other than the fact that you know there are a lot of other games that do the kind of same thing right. it does. Um, and interestingly, I think it's a game that borrows a lot from Rockstar games, you know, talking about hmm. Red Dead and Rockstar and the critiques of Rockstar and the, the sort of stubbornness of Rockstar to not evolve in certain areas of their gameplay style. I think this game, Days Gone, it, it borrows a lot. It is in that – it has that DNA a little bit. It has the things that I hate of – uh, you're in this big open world and there's stuff happening and here you're on a mission and, oh, did you wander off the path too long? Game, uh, mission over, you lost. Mm. You know, game over. Um, I hate that. One of the things I loved so much about Assassin's Creed Odyssey, for example, is 
yeah, I'm in a mission and I have to do a thing, but they don't care how I do it. They don't care where I go while I'm doing it. They don't care if I leap off this mount, the back of this mountain and do a flip as I fly down it to try to get away from the thing and then circle around and reattack from the, they don't care. They let me do however I want because it's a big open world. And, and I kind of feel like anytime a game is like, you're going too far away from the mission. (laughs) <laughs> There's got to be a better way to handle that. And I understand if you're trying to tell a story and it doesn't make sense in the story that you're in a chase and you decide not to go in the chase. Like there's got to be – that's got to be a <laughs> difficult thing to reconcile in a in a narrative game with, that wants to give you choice and wants to give you an open world. Oh, my God. They're coming, for, they're coming right after – they're right behind us. Oh, God. This guy – boss, the guy we're following just got in a boat. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know why. <laughs> he uh, – yeah. He's swimming in he circles, boss. And he's <laughs> harvesting plants for some reason? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But I, there has to be ways to deal with it that aren't you're – going, you're, you're going too far you, – you're too and too far away and again, a mission over. Because this, that just – it just – there's nothing fun about that and it's for frustrating – very much frustrating to me. Uh, and there's a lot of other weird design decisions in this game. I mean, I was thinking about Days Gone a lot as I was reading this Red Dead article because for some reason they are so in love with this motorcycle. I've never been a motorcycle guy, so I don't get it maybe. Maybe I just don't get it. Maybe people who – clearly people who ride motorcycles love motorcycles. And uh, the character that you're playing, uh, Deacon I guess his name is? In uh, in Days Gone, loves his motorcycle, and there's a lot of the game that's about the motorcycle, and there's there's something cool about the motorcycle for sure, and the way the motorcycle controls is very different. It doesn't just feel like any other car. It doesn't feel like a horse. You know, it feels like a motorcycle. It's, it, kudos to them for doing that. But man, you have to babysit this thing, and you have to find parts <laughs> for it and gasoline for it, and if you don't, oh. Heaven help you because you're going to be walking that thing and it's agonizingly slow and it's it's like I don't care enough about this motorcycle. Can I just leave it? I don't – and I understand we're in the dystopian post-apocalypse where motorcycle is the key to survival and you got to have a motorcycle because you got to outrun the hordes of zombies. But I don't – I was like I'd rather be eaten by zombies than deal with this stupid motorcycle anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, If I have to choose between zombies and motorcycle, I'm picking zombies. Um Anyway, so that you know, there's a lot to like about it. It's a really big, beautiful game. Uh, some of the the ability to improvise on the fly and dealing with bad guys and all the kind of cool weapons you get and scenarios and it, it, it you know, the, there's a lot of cool stuff. But there's a lot of monotony and there's a lot of the the sort of the worst aspects of open world games that frustrate me. So it's not a home run in the way that you know Spider Man was or some of the other. Uh, Sony open world exclusives that we've been sort of used to just them being home runs every time. This doesn't feel like that. And I feel bad saying it because it's a new IP and it's a big bombastic world that I was excited for, as they talked about it, it just, I don't know the, it's not a place I like being in. It's not a guy I like hanging out with. I'm not a fan of his motorcycle and <laughs> I am, I'm having a hard what time. If it was a Tesla. You yeah. have to find solar stations to plug in. Now, and then, now we're talking. Now, it... now we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not zombies. It's just people in L.A. that annoy me. Uh, I like it. And I'm not murdering them so much as avoiding them and driving uh, through traffic through them. Yeah. Anyway. Um, oh, wait. That's my life. No. Um, all right. <laughs> so we're kind of running up on it. I, I do want to talk a little bit about Labo VR, especially because Blake's here. So let's do a little bit of VR talk. Virtual reality. 
So before I go off on my own little rant, uh, Blake, are you? Do you own an Oculus or do you own any VR headset? Are you are you that much into it? Oh yeah, I mean, I worked on the book for three and a half years, and those were all business expenses. So <laughs> there you go, right? Everything. There you go. Um, yeah, yeah, but I, but but as I was sort of starting to mention a while back, but it's good to hold off until now. Um, was that I, I love what Nintendo is doing because it's kind of what I thought Oculus was going to do and what they should have been doing in particular with the VR modes for Mario Odyssey and for Zelda. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, I, like one of the internal struggles that you see a little bit in the book is this idea of some of the Oculus leadership thinking that if something is um, available for the Rift, it should be exclusively made for the ground up for VR. Mm-hmm. And then there was other people like John Carmack who believed that you know, existing IP, like we were just talking about, is like such an important thing. And basically getting a VR mode of existing games or existing IP is a great way to get people into VR. And so I like that that's what Nintendo has done. Um, I would like like to see a little bigger investment from them at some point in VR, because I think that ultimately IP and and like we were saying with Red Dead Redemption, just wanting to be somewhere is a big thing. And I want to just be in the Mushroom Kingdom in VR. Um, Like that's such a big part of it. But I like, you know, I'll take these baby steps and, and like the fun and joy that they sort of the way that they've made it like a crafts project um, to getting us there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sympathetic to both of those notions because I appreciate that the Oculus ecosystem has stuff that's built from the ground up for VR. I mean, there's a lot of range of quality in the Oculus store for sure. I'm not, not everything is cultivated to be perfect or great even, but, um, but there, but there are a lot of things that, you know, everything works for VR is meant for VR things about VR, but also, you know, I think it's cool that there's a fallout in VR, that there's a, there's a Skyrim in VR. I think that's awesome. And yeah, I was so excited to give uh, Zelda and Mario a try. Have you tried the Labo VR, Blake? Um, no, I haven't tried okay. it yet. Well, so what as, do you think? as I mentioned this week, I had family in town um, for my daughter's first birthday. And one of the, one of the people that's in town is my nine year old nephew. And I thought, ah, oh, this is going to be a great, I'll go, I'll go <laughs> spring for the lab of VR. We'll build it together and we'll play around with it. And that's exactly what we did. And I have to be honest, it's actually the first labo anything I've built. And the process of building the cardboard is great. I don't know if we've even really talked about it on the show before Christian, have we, I, I don't know if we had anybody else that talked about doing labo, but man, it is a, it is so well done. It made me go, I wish Lego would steal this from Nintendo <laughs> because what happens is you open the box, you pull out the cardboard bits and, and sheets of uncut. Gar- is this your first Labo build? I just said that, dude. Did you, were you off doing something else? <laughs> but no, no, but you said that you've done the other Labo. I don't think, no, I haven't ever done the other Labo. I've, I've used the built Labos that people had, uh, okay. but I didn't yeah, build yeah. the Labo. Oh yeah, yeah. I I totally missed that. Okay, yes, it's incredible. Yeah. It's so great. It's so great. Uh it is um it, it, like I said I want Lego to steal it because you just you just push the put plop the cartridge into your switch and it steps you through the process and throughout it you can rotate the model. You know, we've all had the experience of building Lego and following on that book and there's a joy in following along that book, but it's often like 
what piece are they putting in? I can't quite see, you know, <laughs> right. if you could physically, you know, rotate it around and, and it's got this fast forward and rewind system. It's really just so slick. And I want Lego to have an app that does that. Cause that would be right. I wonder if they do online, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know either to be quite does. honest, but it, you don't get a link to anything when you buy a Lego set, right? Yeah, I certainly haven't. I've built some recently and I have not yeah. seen that. I mean, the, the books are classic and I love them. And there's a soft space in my heart for like hunching over that little shiny the little book. book. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Anyway, that's I'm bearing the lead here. So we built it and we, you know, I plopped my uh, my switch into the headset. It's pretty amazing. The little headset. And we played some of the VR mini games, which are fun. Slight little uh nothings you know they're 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 very small experiences and so i was like i want to try zelda i want to try zelda it's not great guys it's not great <laughs> it's not i had great. a feeling we were building up to a big disappointment here itself. yeah it's not great i mean zelda in particular zelda in particular is is not vr it's not it's uh it's cool 3d full field of view view of zelda but there's no head tracking in it you're still controlling the camera oh, with wow. with the and it is extremely uncomfortable to hold that thing on your face this you know the idea of playing 100 hours of zelda like that is insane i have to admit i have to admit and this is the honest truth i played way more of it than i thought i was going to i picked it up and i was like oh this is not great it's blurry it's kind of not good the colors are all a little washed out and then like 20 minutes later i'm like i bet i could get another one of those little cooking recipe oh oh i've been playing zelda this whole day now i don't know if it's a quality of zelda or and it was awesome that it was in my entire field of view and it was awesome that it was in 3d uh but it may just be how good that game is um because it did you get motion sickness at all like the frame rate stuff that's gonna be kind of speculative if, about if before, i moved like... my body my head like i would want to in a vr headset then yes, I would get motion sickness. I, I would, huh. it got a little, but you're not supposed to move. It's like looking into, it's as if you went to New York city at the empire state building and we're looking into one of those, you know, you put a quarter yeah. in and you can spy across, you know, a mile of whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's like that. You're just supposed to hold it on your face and then you use your thumbs to move the camera. That didn't make me queasy. It was just, if I moved my head in any way, because my head expected the world to go with it and it didn't right now. With Mario Odyssey, it does do that. But Mario Odyssey isn't the, isn't the whole game. It's just these made these little bespoke levels made for VR. So it does do that, but you're not able. It doesn't have a follow camera for for Mario. It's these little arenas, basically, where your camera position is fixed, and you can rotate your head 360 degrees in all directions around and yeah there's cool stuff behind you and cool stuff in front of you but mario runs away from you and runs up as you control him the camera doesn't follow him so uh, okay it's better than astrobot is that what <laughs> not even in any <laughs> universe uh but it at least is giving you virtual reality i mean the, calling the zelda experience vr is not even fair it's not vr it's there's no head tracking in it it is unless i was right. doing something wrong but i don't think i was it it is, it is literally just staring into a 3D world and playing the game with your hands pressed to your face. Uh, <laughs> so it's 3D and that's cool. And it's, you know, like there's no edge to the screen and that's cool, but it is not VR. It's, uh, VR is, is tracking your head in space. And yeah, Mario does that. But again, there are small little levels uh, and it is very blurry. 
the resolution that the switch outputs is, is not up to snuff as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's a cool little tech demo and it, but again, it reinforces what I said when I heard it announced, which is, I just wish Nintendo did this for real. Just do it for real. Right. Like put out the, put out the, the little like hundred, $150 plastic version of this. That's not cardboard that, and then make some actual experiences for it. Do it for real. Don't mess around. Like, I don't understand. I don't understand. So. Well, I'm glad you got it. And I'm curious. I definitely want to try it now, especially now that, now that I know you have it. Um, yeah, I wonder if Zelda just couldn't handle it. I did hear the update that everybody should do the update, though, because it makes Zelda load faster. Yeah, I heard <laughs> so, that, too. Like, just even if you don't have VR. Yeah, I'll bring it into um, work tomorrow, so and cool. you can try it. But it's... um yeah. It's not great. I mean, it's not great. It's cool that they did it, I guess, but and it's slick the way the cardboard actually works and it all works, but it's for, to what end? Like it it's exactly, you know, we had this weird progression where it was announced and I was like, "Oh, no, I don't like this. This is not how I want people to experience VR because I don't think this sells people on VR." And then there are a bunch of reviews where people are like, "Oh, it's way better than you think." And all these people emailed us and <laughs> tweeted at me and said, Jeff, you're going to bite your tongue because it's actually good. And aren't you happy? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I am happy if it's actually good. And now I tried it and I'm back to my original position, which is, <laughs> I don't want this to be somebody's first VR. I don't. Uh, it was my yeah. nine-year-old nephew's first VR. And he was like, yeah, it's fine. And he put it down after two minutes. Cause he's like my arm. There was, I'm not making this up. He literally stood up at one point and like shook his arms. You know how you do when your arms are hurting he shook his arms like, oh, it's hard to maintain this position. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, he, he didn't, he wasn't even playing Zelda. He was just playing a couple of the mini games. So, yeah. Not great Labo VR. But Sorry. He's getting ripped, though. He's getting ripped triceps for holding Dude, that he's, thing up. He's, yeah, but that's really disappointing. Yeah. Because it's such a big thing with Oculus or HTC and Valve, just the, the idea of like poisoning the well, of, right. you know, with Google, you know, it's Google, it's cool. You know, I understand they're thinking this, this is more accessible, cheap. We'll get people in the VR, but the retention rate of people using Google cardboard is not good. And for your first experience, like that, that makes that saddens me that your nephew's first experience is not a good one. Cause you're, you said, you know, like, what do you want from a tech demo? I think mostly what you want is someone to say, Oh, I want to, I want to do more of this right. in whatever capacity. And, and that doesn't sound like, that's what you're going to get, nor does it sound like Nintendo should have reasonably expected that, so that's a bummer. Well, fear not, Blake, for he will not leave my home without being brought into my <laughs> Shangri-La yeah. of now VR heads. <laughs> yes, I will be like, and now Beat Saber, and he'll be like, oh! Yes. Yeah. Um, Good. Anyway, so there you go. All right. Uh, this show's been going, weird. this has been a really fun one, really fun, very different kind of show than we normally do, but I've been enjoying it, so uh, thanks so much. We're going to we're going to wrap the show up. We do have our parting gift coming up, so stick around for that. But Blake J. Harris, thank you so much for being here, sir. Thank you guys so much for having me. I should mention that I do have a website that is built by Squarespace. Hey, so, synergy. Good, good sponsor. They have made my life better. Um, and one thing I wanted to mention, just it's relevant to early on when I was talking about writing books about video games and how I hope that my book has helped others or I hope that I want to read others, that if there's anybody out there 
that's interested in writing a book about video games or has been working on it, um, I'm really easy to get to on Twitter or through my website by Squarespace. Um, and I love, you know, I, 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 I tell my wife, I'm not, up to, I don't think I'm a very nice person in general. I don't know, but, but I'm always <laughs> very nice and helpful to people who uh, want to write books about video games. Cause I, that's something I believe in and I care about. And, and Christian has uh, quite a list of So if anybody has a, wants to start working <laughs> on a video game book, you, know, you got, you got the material and you got the access to the people who've done it. I mean, this is amazing. We're, 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 starting an entire industry here tonight and i, I, I kind of like i just like the idea of like people are like oh blake what are you working on next i'm like oh i'm, I'm christian spicer's personal writing butler so <laughs> it's up to him i like so the idea that talk, i don't think i yeah. can afford it but i love the idea <laughs> i mean if, if you can do it for um uh, how they get made i think you should be able to do it for yeah. just my personal <laughs> leisure as well you know uh so Blake, why don't you let people know what that Twitter handle is and what that website is so they can get a hold of you should they be so inclined. Sure. So uh, you could find me on Twitter at Blake J. Harris, NYC, um, or my website at BlakeJHarris.com, all one word. Uh, it's just my name, my middle initial, and my last name. And I'm very easy to get to and uh, I'll probably engage with you if you have good things to say or bad things to say because I... I, I do think that it's uh, – I feel very fortunate to have been the custodian for these two great stories, and I try to take everyone's feedback seriously and, and get them answers. Uh, you may not be able to say this, but do you know what the next thing is that you're going to work on? Oh, I do. Um, I'll, I'll send you guys a little overview of it afterwards, but but don't don't despair, listeners. It's, 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 this, this project is unrelated to video games, oh. so I hope to – Maybe work on some Christian side projects in the meantime, but it's about the first. This one will be about the first three Americans to open a hotel in Tahiti back in the 1960s and their attempt to build the Tahitian Empire. Um, Yeah, a good little travel story. They ended up having 18 kids by 10 different women. Oh, man. um, What appealed to me most was the business side of it. So you just wanted to write um, off a trip to Tahiti. I know. That actually is kind of what happened. uh, my, My manager called me and he said, Hey, how would you feel if instead of interviewing hundreds of people and spending a few years traveling around the country on a project, would you like to go to Tahiti and just interview a few people and write a book? And I said, I'm, I'm at least interested in having this conversation. <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> so you're not totally off. Awesome. Well, wow. That's something to look forward to. That's really cool. What an interesting idea. What an interesting story. Uh, Christian Spicer, what about you? What do you got going on this week? Well, I'll be spinning up streaming again this week, and all of the month of May, I'm still trying to work out the schedule. But um, I'm, you know, spin it back up. I want to raise more money for St. Jude. Last year, I think we all raised a little over three thousand dollars. Our little community yeah. here. I've set this year's goal at six thousand dollars, uh, which I want to do. And also, I mentioned it, I believe, in the the cold open to this show, but I want to reiterate it here. Um, if it this week, up until May 4th, any dollar you, dollar you donate, I will match it dollar for dollar up to a $1,000 total cap. Like I'm not, I'm not making that, you know, I hire a personal book butler money yet. Um, <laughs> but you can find the link on my Twitter and also just on my website, christianspicer.com. I have the donate link there. So if you want to donate to St. Jude and help the kids, um, I will match it dollar for dollar all this week. And I'll be setting up what games I'm streaming, getting a schedule going here fairly soon so twitter at spicer and twitch twitch.tv slash christian spicer and uh all the money goes to them it the tiltify running it you know that no cuts are being taken out of this stuff it all goes directly to saint jude so go to christianspicer.com donate and i will match you dollar for dollar very cool 
You can always follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T. And I do a another podcast all about movies and TV shows called the Slash Filmcast. We just did our big Avengers Endgame episode. It was awesome. We had special guest Patrick Willems on. Uh, really, really, really fun episode. So if you've seen the movie, check it out because we do a lot of really great spoiler talk. Um, so you can find that at SlashFilmcast.com. And I also this week, as I mentioned, launched a brand new endeavor. is a live play Dungeons & Dragons show called The Dungeon Run. It's on caffeine.tv slash The Dungeon Run. Every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Pacific time live. But it's also on YouTube. You can find it at the Caffeine YouTube channel. Uh, and I believe there's going to be an audio podcast version soon, too. So you can check for that. I'm, maybe by the time you hear this, it's up. Um, but, you know, do, saying it's just a Dungeons & Dragons live show isn't, doesn't really do it justice. They have really gone all out. There is a full animatronic puppet in the form of a mind flayer that talks to the audience. It's interactive. The audience can actually influence the game. It is wild. They built this amazing set and these all these cool models that we're going to be using and playing Dungeons & Dragons with. So I urge you to check it out. I'm super proud of it. Uh, there's a fun... Th- it's real Thank good. you, Christian. I appreciate it. There's a there's a fun thread in our subreddit uh, about people that that are, has been very positive about it too, uh, and there are a lot of big surprises coming soon. So I mean, we only had one episode so far. That's really just setting everything up. But there's some big, cool stuff I have planned, and who knows? I mean, the audience gets to influence it. Of course, the players are influencing it. So I'm not entirely certain where it's headed, but I have some big, big ideas because I'm the dungeon master. So I hope you guys check it out. Uh, Wednesday nights, 6 p.m. Pacific time, caffeine.tv slash the dungeon run are over on YouTube. Uh, I think it's youtube.com slash caffeine, but I'm not really sure. You have to just search, just search for the dungeon runs. The first thing that comes up, the dungeon run. All right. That's it. Uh, let's, uh, end the show now with our parting gifts. Hey, give us a suggestion. Blake, do you have a suggestion to help people get through their week? Um, yes. I'm reading a really good book. It's a children's book. It's a Diary of an Awesome Friendly Kid. It's part of the Diary of a Whippy Kid series. Hmm. I know that uh, probably most of the people listening to this book are not children. Maybe you have children, but I have always enjoyed children's books. I find that they're very fun to uh, a good way to unwind after a long day of uh, adult stuff. And this book is another great one in the series. So whether it's this book or one of the other Diary of the Wimpy Kid books, um, I would say that they're better than the movies and they're really fun. So that's my suggestion. Very cool. Love it. Uh, Christian Spicer, how about you? You got a parting gift? Oh, I have like the most Christian Spicer parting gift ever. Uh I have a couple. Ride skateboards while listening to pop punk while donating to charity (laughs) while, uh, what is it? Rooting for the Rockets. (laughs) Very close to all that. Uh, People people of Earth listening to this show, just because it's starting to get hot doesn't mean you can't wear jeans. Yes, it does. Look into, (laughs) pay attention to the denim you're wearing. Too many people. And I'm not like the most hardcore denim head, but I love some good denim. Most people just like go to the store, go online, or like these are the jeans that fit me. And then you get them and they're all hot or it's the winter and they're not warm enough. Pay attention to the weight of your denim. Get good quality denim. Know where it's sourced from. Know how, where it's made. Know how it's being made. Now it's getting warmer. I'd recommend if you love rocking you know, jeans and sneaks or whatever your look is, you can keep that going great over the summer. Go get some lightweight 
summer denim, look good, feel good. Pay attention to what you're putting on your body. That's my that's my parting gift denim. to you. Go get some good denim. You don't want to be Jeff out there in them shorts. Give me them knees. <laughs> Give shorts. me them knees. Denim? <laughs> I hardly even know them. I don't um, – <laughs> that is very Christian. You'll see some new denim tomorrow. Oh, I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. You, de- mm-hmm. you got new denim. Yeah. Christian gets new denim, new denim like once every two years, and it's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's true. My, I, denim lasts yeah. a long time. Get yeah. good denim. Get that good yeah. denim. Uh, we had a listener-suggested parting gift. This comes to us at dlcfeedback at gmail.com. This comes from Matthew McFerrin from sunny London. Uh, Matthew says, uh, I had to recommend Netflix's first Korean series, Kingdom. It's based on a web series, The Kingdom of the Gods, and it's already been renewed for a second season. Aside from looking stunning, the show has some interesting twists and turns and also has some different zombie-related stuff which I haven't seen before. It goes further than just zombies. There's political upheaval and spying, mean people doing mean things. But don't worry, there are zombies doing zombie things too. If you like The Walking Dead and sumptuous, the style and look of Crouching Tiger, uh, House of Flying Daggers, I can't rem- recommend it enough. It's also uh, It's also Netflix made, so it's beautiful Ultra HD, which makes it look even more amazing. So that's Kingdom, and it is a Korean series on Netflix. Sounds very cool. Have either of you guys seen that or heard of that? I have not. No, but I will definitely actually check that out. That sounds really cool. Well, thank you, Matthew, for sending that in. If you want to have your parting gift read on the show, send it to us at dlcfeedback at gmail.com. I usually like to have one that is something you can see, read, watch, do, Mine's going to be a little more esoteric this week because, as I said, I have been working so hard on the dungeon run. And as the dungeon master, I've been uh, thinking things up and inventing cool moments and quests and ideas and worlds and characters. And I think, you know, this is a show dedicated to being someone that consumes things, that loves playing video games that loves experiencing board games and, and, and all of that is great. And I don't want to take any of it away or anything away from any of it. It is, I love it still, but I think when we consume a lot, we maybe sometimes at least I can lose sight of creating. And I think Blake, you can back me up on this. The act of creating something is so intoxicating and so fulfilling and so fun. And uh, whatever form that takes for you, instead of just consuming, remember to create. Uh, Remember to find something you can create. And for me, even, you know, a Dungeons & Dragons campaign is is a pretty uh, (laughs) odd thing to think of as a creation because, it's you know, it's just a bunch of imaginative, goofy stuff that you tell among your friends. But even that has been so fulfilling to me to just think things through and come up with great ideas and kind of have this program running in the back of my head the whole all through my day of like, oh my gosh, even as I'm going about doing other things, <laughs> driving or talk, even talking to people, whatever, there's this little program running in the background that's working on this problem, working on coming up with stuff. And it's so satisfying to have that program running, to be thinking in a creative way. So my parting gift is I hope you find something to create and uh, nourish that in yourself instead of just consuming, also create. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of DLC. Thanks again to Blake J. Harrison, Christian Spicer for hanging out with me. Thanks to all the folks in our chat room for hanging out with us in real time. Uh, Thanks to our musical contributors, Patrick L., Sean Madigan, and Zero Star for making those cool bumpers. And thank you to you 
for listening. We'll be back next week. Until then, think about what you put out into the world. Make it a better place.